0: Tune in to the Neil Prendiville Show weekdays from 9am on Cork's Red FM.
1: And this is Mick Mulcahy, Neil Prendiville, returning on Monday morning. Now, uh, staying with the weather and staying with the positive news before we delve into the papers uh, and get all that's going on there. Get set for a Sunday sizzler. We can expect the hottest day of the year this weekend. Temperatures likely to rise above 20 degrees as high pressure closes in. Matt Aaron says temperatures could even hit 21 degrees on Sunday, which is hotter than normal for this time of the year. It would be hotter than the previous Warmest day of the year, which was the 20 degrees Celsius enjoyed across the country last Saturday. And after a dull and overcast week so far, people can pack up their cars and head to the beach. However, it'll be a short reprieve as the unsettled weather returns from Sunday night. Now, to the papers in general, the Mail has the very stark headline 20,000 Chase 1,000. Rental homes. 20,000 people are chasing fewer than 1,000 homes available to rent nationwide. As Supply has fallen to a new record low. The unbelievable scarcity of properties on the market mean that many growing families are stuck in unsuitable homes or are struggling to find homes to rent if they have to move location. The squeeze on supply is also leading to rising costs. With the average rent up uh, €165 a month over the past year to uh, €1,567 on average, an increase of almost 12%. The latest uh, rental report from daft.ie reveals uh, nationwide there are just 851 homes to rent on May 1st and on May 1st last year there was 3,600 homes. So, report author Ronan Lyons, Associate Professor of Economics at Trinity College, said the economy has suffered from an under-provision of new rental accommodation for over a decade. And as a result, market rents have doubled and rental incomes have become, uh, unbe- uh, sorry, rental homes have become unbelievably scarce. Staying with the topic of housing and homeless, a homeless man was found dead near a government office. Fergal Blaney reporting in the mirror that a homeless man has been found dead, sadly, close to a government office. The uh, discovery was made at Ladd Lane in Dublin. On Monday morning, the man has found a stone's throw from Health Minister Stephen Donnelly's office, which is on Bagot Street. Uh, it comes as 115 homeless deaths were recorded last year, more than double that of 2019. Cork rents, meanwhile, are up 10% in a year, bringing a one-bed flat to €1,100 Euros a month. I'm aware of uh, new... Three-bed houses, I won't mention where, that have just made, I think it's probably a corporate letting rather than uh, families moving in, uh three-bed, uh one terraced and one semi-detached that have made €2,200 a month uh, in rent. It's absolutely astronomical, but there you go. Cork rents in the first quarter of this year were over 10% higher than the same period in 2021 with the average rent in the country now up 111% from its lowest point. That's according to the latest figures released by DAF.ie, as I mentioned. And just 851 homes for rent across the country also leads the examiner's front page. And the lack of plumbers, painters, electricians and roofers is detailed by Philip Ryan, the political editor of the Irish Independent. Uh, More than 50,000 construction workers are urgently needed to fill a black hole in the workforce if the government is to meet targets aimed at tackling the housing crisis. An unpublished report has identified a significant lack of electricians, plumbers, painters, and bricklayers. These workers will be required to construct the promised 33,000 homes a year by 2030, while also meeting the government's retrofitting targets. The report by training agency Solace highlights major gaps throughout the apprenticeship system that will need to be filled over the next 80 years. And if you're thinking of going into construction, uh, let me give you the uh, stark figures of uh, the big, big hole uh, and the huge demand uh, for your skills if you want to move into these areas. If you want to be a wall tiler or a floor tiler, 1,130 vacancies. A bricklayer or mason, 1,807 vacancies will be there. Uh, This is projections, of course, up to 2030. Electricians and electrical fitters, there'll be 7,038 needed. Plumbers and ventilation engineers, 7,035. A road construction worker, they'll need just 224, so they seem to be uh, well covered there. Plasterers, we're going to be short 3,515 of you. Painters and decorators, 4,530 will be needed. Construction building trades, 3,137. This is all in the uh, independent today. Construction trade supervisor, 677. Pipe fitter, 114. Crane driver, we need 46. Construction operatives, we need 2,806. Insulation operatives, because of the uh, uh, the new requirements for BER, I imagine. 4,555 insulation officers. Uh, operatives, roofers, tilers, and slaters, fifteen hundred and eighty-seven. Engineering support, two and a half thousand carpenters and joiners 7,352 and I didn't even know there was such a trade as this if you want to be an air tightness technician there will be 1,368 vacancies Pray to moneylenders says the Echo front page First Communion families are targeted moneylenders in Cork City are cashing in on First Holy Communion season by targeting families with a child receiving the sacrament who may not have access to low cost credit Ursula Collins Regional Manager for Financial Advice Service MABS told the Echo they are hearing from families who felt their only option was to succumb to ruthless moneylenders. It comes as thousands of children celebrate their communion throughout this month. She explained certain parts of the city are considered hotspots for moneylenders and illegal moneylenders are targeting areas where there are high levels of unemployment among other socio-economic factors. These are the areas where people are very vulnerable to illegal Money lenders. I did not murder Santina uh, is the large headline on the front of the sun today. All the injuries, I don't know anything. A woman accused of killing a two-year-old girl proclaimed her innocence on the stand yesterday. Karen Harrington, 37, declared I did not murder Santina Cawley and she told the Central Criminal Court Santina was unharmed when the toddler was left at her Cork flat in the early hours of July 5th, 2019. She said all the injuries she had, I don't know anything about. Santina so, also making the star today. Murder accused tells court she was unsure how toddler was killed. Olivia Keller reporting a woman accused of the murder of a two year old girl has claimed that she did not kill the toddler and was unsure as to who was responsible for the crime. To the mirror we go, and uh, Olivia Killer also reporting there uh, on the same case. Santina did not cause her injuries. Do you accept only person with her was you, said Sean Gallan at the Central Criminal Court yesterday. Uh, During cross-examination, prosecutor Sean Gallan asked uh, her to solve the mystery of what had occurred to Santina. He said Santina did not cause the injuries to herself. Do you accept the only person with her was you? And Harrington replied, no. Council asked, would you like to name anyone else with her? And uh, Mr Gallan added, if she hadn't inflicted the injuries on the youngster, then who did? Check it out in the uh, mirror today. The sun, uh, back to the sun. Uh, Don't buy a flight until your passport lands. Is the call Irish holidaymakers are being urged not to book flights until they receive their renewed passports. This is due to a major backlog being dealt with in the passport office. As people scramble to get their renewals, before the summer holidays. Some people are facing delays of eight weeks It a last night, and for, uh, former Irish and MLA Gemma Dolan said her office had been inundated with requests for people who need to uh, travel uh, to get their documents accelerated. Uh, so it's happening kind of north and south, it looks like. Uh, the Mirror has face masks will no longer be mandatory in airports and on flights in Europe, from next Monday. However, the coverings may have to remain uh, on trips to several countries. The European Union Aviation Safety Agency, EASA, and the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, the ECDC, uh, made the recommendations to ease mask requirements, but they'll still be mandatory on Ryanair flights to 15 EU countries uh, when the rule on face coverings is dropped. So always bring the mask with you because Ireland's biggest airline said it's acting in line with the new advice from EU agencies. The EU advice added, if the country still has mandatory mask rules for public transport, then airlines should take the proper precautions too. The Mail has a farmer losing a €6,000 appeal for wiping out a hedgerow. Carlo Circuit Criminal Court upheld a fine. Of 6,000 euro and five convictions for a man who pleaded guilty to destroying birds' nests and their eggs and for destroying vegetation during the nesting season. They're moving a few uh, moving a few bus bays, not knocking the Arc de Triomphe, says Michael Moynihan in The Examiner. A former colleague here, he says, at Examiner Towers, now retired, once regaled us with one of his holiday highlights, the time he tried to drive around the Arc de Triomphe in Paris at Rochard. Uh, yeah, that's on a lot of people's bucket list. The Great Monument is an eye-catching landmark for anyone driving in the French capital. And our man, accompanied in his car by the entire family, got into the flow uh, of the traffic all right. But I couldn't get out, he said. There were no rules, no law. Cars everywhere zooming in and out, and I was terrified. Well, the exciting possibilities offered by not one, but two car parks, Uh, on the quay and the occasional stranger to the city uh, is uh, the feature of the article here in the uh, Examiner by Michael Moynihan. Uh, The vagaries of the Paris metro can be enjoyed, but getting from St. Patrick's Quay to Anderson's Quay is too challenging a journey. I think he's saying, is there much ado about nothing here? Final is uh, worth a million brooks. Our singer's Eurovision hopes, of course. Irish Eurovision star Brooke Scullion hopes to make the grand final, and that'll help launch her career in the states, she aims to bag a slot when she performs. That's rich. At uh, tonight's second semi-final in Italy, Brooke is 23. She revealed that whatever happens, she'll uh, jet to the US after the event uh, to write with Meghan Trainor, uh, the American singer, uh, was the Derry girl's mentor on The Voice UK in 2020. And Brooke says that uh, just getting through to Saturday's grand final will give her the profile she needs to launch new material in uh, just two weeks. And stars' messages of support ahead of the semi-final tonight. A host of well-known stars have sent uh, good luck messages to Eurovision hopeful Brooke Scullion as she gears up for her performance during uh, tonight at the Song Contest. So, best wishes to the Derry native.
0: Cork's number one talk show, The Neil Prendiville Show on Red FM.
1: Hello, very good morning. At 18 and a half minutes past nine, we're joined on uh, line two by Pat Larkin uh, of Ward Solutions and a board member of Cyber Ireland. Uh, good morning to you, Pat. Good morning, We're here on the first anniversary of the major cyber attack on the HSE. It seems like longer. I don't know why, for some reason. Everything seems seems much further away. uh, It's only a year since this happened. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's literally a year, yeah. An awful lot of water under the bridge since then in terms of just, obviously, the HSE recovery, but even... I suppose a change in the geopolitical situation has also major ramifications for for cyber security in Ireland.
1: Okay, this all very this all happened because of the innocuous opening of a link containing a spreadsheet which was innocently opened by a HSE staff member and this of course was the kind of trojan horse wasn't it?
2: Yeah, that's that's typically the way that we we see uh, these types of groups uh, you know penetrating at an organization's network it's usually what what we call a breach of the human firewall um And, you know, it's one of the most important resources in securing an organization because no matter what technical controls organizations put in place, a lot of these groups are typically successful by then, you know, uh, exploiting through social engineering or some other method, uh, getting an innocent person or an inadvertent person to do something that uh, allows them access to the network. Uh, It's a typical approach to attacking an an organization.
1: Okay, and believed to be a Russian hacking group? Yeah, that's reported, yeah. Like, I know it's
2: still under investigation. Uh, and I suppose we, Ward Solutions, were, were were part of the response to elements of the health group as well. So it, it, that's widely reported that, that it, it was a, a, a Russian group. But I suppose I don't want to say anything that would would compromise any other investigation.
1: Sure, of course, yeah. No, it was, however, the most significant cybercrime attack uh, on an Irish state agency anyway. Uh, and the largest known attack against a health service Computer system. It's a pretty low blow, isn't it, to uh, upset the appointments and the medical needs of uh, of a population?
2: Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people kind of treat this or report this as kind of a, a, a financial crime. But but I, I wrote an op-ed in the, the the Irish Examiner around the time that said. You know, we, we, we globally and, and politically, we really need to change our, our response to this because it isn't a financial crime. It's, it's you know, it's a, it's a very significant crime against individuals. The disruption that happened to the health service, you know, you, you could only come to the conclusion that as a result of that disruption, patient outcomes uh, were significantly impacted, you know, apart from the normal health service needs, we were obviously going through a major crisis in terms of COVID that was significantly disrupted as well. So these types of attacks, whether they're perpetrated by cyber criminal cartels, uh, with or without the support of nation states, um, these attacks are a different order of magnitude because of their impact, the disruption to you know a nation state, its citizens, and, and I, I would argue, you know, probably the, the definite uh, adverse impact on, on, on patient mortality as a result of it. Wow. It's a different order of magnitude of crime, absolutely.
1: Uh, and can you comment on uh, maybe, maybe even your feeling? Was there a ransom paid? I know that the, uh, the release codes were, were given a, a short time later. Uh, and of course, the system had to be rebuilt. Do you feel that something was given to these terrorists, cyber terrorists?
2: I don't believe so. I mean, we can only go on what's reported. I don't believe so, because I think one of the things that was obvious through this, I mean, at the time, obviously, Ireland were still on every nation state's Christmas card list at that time. I think a lot of soft power was deployed around that time through diplomatic channels, etc. And I don't believe it's a coincidence then that a lot of that soft power was deployed. to states where this group were most likely uh, resident and, and, and probably nurtured, um, you know, within a reasonably short time frame, those decryption keys were were provided. So, my belief, I think, would be that that soft power had impact. I don't believe also that. A lot of these groups exist, you know, uh, they have their own objectives, obviously, and they, they, you know, raise uh, revenue from from the ransoms that they perpetrate. But they exist also at the beck and call of the nation state they're resident in to affect foreign policy. So at the time, I don't believe that, um, you know, the the attack on uh, a neutral country's uh, national health system would have been in line with the foreign policy of the state that it was most likely resident in. So I would imagine then when this software power is deployed, I think that's probably, you know, that this group's arms were probably twisted then locally to, to release the ransom keys because mm. uh, because of the adverse impact. In a lot of other cases where it's attacking, you know, healthcare systems in the United States or whatever it is, that would possibly be more in line with foreign policy and probably more in line with the objectives mm. um, of, 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 you know, both the, the, the criminal actors and, say, the state that is nurturing them.
1: Okay. Now, we all pick up a few words here and there from various different languages on our holidays or whatever, but you guys operate in a digital language that's way above probably 99% of the population. Can you uh, can you in any way, in layman's terms, describe the attack, uh, well, what it took out, uh, the effects of that, and how do you start building back up trust and operational capacity in the system?
2: Sure. It's, I suppose it's called a ransomware attack, typically, and... and what uh, the, the perpetrators do is by some means, like you described, they, they generate very innocuous kind of social engineering attempts. I think most citizens would experience those whether on their phone or on their laptop, you know, the, the Nigerian Prince email or the win a holiday
1: or... There's loads of on-post ones at the moment and uh, and yeah, uh, delivery yeah. companies, you know, you've yeah. got a package and but I- you've got to pay one do Don't click on them.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, you even really find that they they'll get more much more targeted, particularly when there's much higher rewards, that they'll do a bit of reconnaissance on relationships between individuals and, and a very targeted email, you know, between Mary and Pat or whatever it is. Um when they get that when they, when you click on that link, it typically downloads some sort of a program or something like that that then gives those organizations access into the network and deploys you know a payload or a piece of software that gives matches into the network. typically, then those organizations spend an amount of time doing what we call reconnaissance i e looking at the configuration of the network, looking at the data involved. Even possibly determining whether there's cyber insurance or the organization's ability to pay etc cetera, etc cetera. that reconnaissance can go on for days or months or weeks um, and then at some point they decide to act and then the act in this case is typically they will uh, release further software that effectively encrypts the data on these systems and it not only encrypts the data and makes it inaccessible in that you know you need keys to release that data but also potentially then they extract that data so that so they're, they're going to have a, a, a double shot at this in the sense that uh, in some cases organisations uh, need the data so they may be willing to pay uh, the ransom in order to get that data back or to get their systems back. In other cases the threat of having that data and releasing it uh, is also further pressure to, um, to, to get the organisations to pay because a lot of organisations don't want to disclose that they've been hacked because usually there's a significant amount of what you call victim-blaming that goes on. So so the organization is blamed by its customers and by regulators, etc., etc., and oh. it's typically signed and maybe loses customers and loses revenue, etc., as well.
1: So what we're talking um, about, really, is kind of a Mission Impossible or James Bond, and it's always, of course, visual in the movies where that green line goes across. Yeah, They're sucking all the data out of the system.
2: Yes, yeah. I mean, in this case, you would find... You know, uh, probably clinicians and people like that reporting that, oh, hold on a second, I can't get access to the patient information system or I can't get access to the pharmacy system. So systems would gradually go down and then, you know, portions of the entire network would, would gradually go down because it doesn't just encrypt the data that's on you know, about patients, et etc. et cetera, but encrypts, in some cases, perhaps the underlying operating systems and um, the directory structures, et cetera. So it isn't just the data. It makes the data inaccessible, but it also makes perhaps the system supporting that data inaccessible as well. So you've got I mean,
1: frontline medical skills uh, across the board, including surgeons. Um, you know, you're going to have empty theatres. You're going to have professionals standing around twiddling their thumbs while... Um, you know elective surgeries are pretty much non existent Every, everything now um, everybody must be contacted um, physically over the phone and said sorry we can 't uh, fulfill your operation we 've lost all your yeah, details
2: and, 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 and even you know patients in in hospital undergoing treatment, perhaps whose records were lost or you know they, they you know think of all the related systems you know pharmacies in the hospital that can 't issue drugs or we were talking to friends of ours who were pharmacies and one of the hospitals infected, and they were saying, literally, the tasks they were doing in order to continue to fulfil their, their, you know, their obligation in terms of providing medication to patients was was back forty wow. years. They were involving practices for probably weeks on end that were, you know, unsafe forty years ago, and that's what they had to revert to in order to to treat patients that were in hospital. Um, and, and and you know, so, so so it's it's the impact and the stress on the healthcare system as a point of high stress anyway in terms of we know the challenges the healthcare system had and then we know obviously on, on top of that ransomware uh, and that's why this is a different order of crime and, and we absolutely you know you have to fight it at number of levels you fight it in terms of you know not letting these guys onto your network preventing them you know you fight it in the sense of recovering and get them off your network you fight it at a policing level to, to try and track them down but there's a much bigger geopolitical response required because this is it's unacceptable, unethical behaviour on the part of nation states who nurture these organisations to perpetrate these types of crimes. And okay. And
1: two, two questions, questions in a one pass. Uh, as CEO yes. of Ward Solutions, you guys were brought on board to fix things for the HSC. How did that go? And what sort of uh, comfort do we have that you've put systems in place now so this won't happen again?
2: Sure, well, well, I suppose there was numerous responses. We were helping some parts of the, some of our customers were individual hospital systems, so we were helping those as as part. So, So there was high mobilization of obviously the National Cyber Security Center, the HSE itself, the government, uh, Garda, army, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we were just part of that response. And that was a lesson that was kind of learned in terms of the multiple parts of of the industry, I suppose, that that were needed to try and respond. The response was, I, I would think, because the, the HSE at the time were in crisis mode and used to crisis management as a result of COVID-19, I would think their own crisis response process was good, you know. Yeah. Now, there was still huge impact there's still recovery ongoing uh, you know there was a lot of disruption etc cetera, etc cetera. but I think in terms of the recovery response it was good mainly because they were already exercised in crisis response through the, the COVID-19 crisis response teams that they had in place and the relationships that they had in place with Army with Garda with industry etc etc um the problem really and this isn't just for, for health systems are one of the most challenged systems to secure networks because they're a very diverse network with lots of transient users um, lots of medical systems unplugged etc are plugged in etc cetera, etc cetera, and then lots of data sharing across hospitals and health and different health agencies so they're one of the most challenged environments to secure in any case Um i think the lessons learned are probably more a wake up call for Ireland in the sense that the threat we face, the fact that neutrality at the time doesn't protect us at all. And now we see how transient neutrality is in terms of, you know, the, the, the Ukraine war, etc., etc. <laughs> so I think it was a wake up call for Ireland uh, to say we have to treat cybersecurity and national security seriously. Uh, and that has resulted in some investment. Uh, I, my argument is not enough, but some additional investment into the National Cybersecurity Centre. I presented twice to uh, ROCTIS committees on, on cybersecurity, where politically uh, lots of politicians have now tried to formulate a response and a strategy for this, which is again encouraging to see, but again, we're not doing it enough or fast enough. Um, I think, you know, the mandate of a cyber command for the defense forces and additional resources into defense forces, because it's it's multi-agency. No one agency can solve this. No one budget can solve this. It's a national response and it's a global
1: response. And internationally, there are over two million vacancies, I believe, in cybersecurity around the world. For youngsters who are listening today who might like to take on a challenge and always be in the way of work, if you like. Uh, Now, I I know there's unrelenting pressure on you guys because... Uh, there really is a need to be right all the time, and you fail if the attackers are right just once.
2: Absolutely, but but it's both it's back to layer defense. I mean, attackers get in all the time. You know, those emails arguably getting into your inbox are effectively attackers getting in all the time. It's really what happens when they get in, how quickly you get them out, and then if they do perpetrate something. How resilient you are, so that you affected recovery really quickly. You know, I mean, obviously you saw the health system had graduated recovery over time, and there's uh, still recovering costs still being incurred. So, so you, it, we always argue it's not if, but when. So so this notion that you can keep these guys out, you know, is is a, uh, is a fallacy now. So so what you have to do is have multi-layered defence, which is you're trying to keep the guys out. You're trying to, you know, prevent the, the attack occurring in the first place, and that's both technical and, you know, people and organizational controls, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But also, then it's your response; it's your ability to detect them when they're in there. And typically, you see that on average, uh, a bad actor on a network is remains undetected for about 190 days on average, and then on average, the time to get them off your network when they're, i.e., full recovery, is about 190 days. So, so almost for for a lot of incidents. It's almost a year, you know, in terms of the, the, the uh, between the the original penetration of your network and the time of full recovery.
1: Okay and, A texture Pat, has asked me to ask you why companies don't use safer operating systems like Linux.
2: Um, all operating systems have vulnerabilities. You know, I, I mean, again, part of the control would be to say, well, look, we're using operating systems and, and systems and software. Uh, and keeping it patched and keeping it up to date. But that is a huge challenge for organizations. I mean, you know, there are daily releases, daily vulnerabilities, and then there's what is called zero day, which is, you know, a new vulnerability, a new quality control issue from a security perspective is identified and there is no patch for it. And then, you know, the bad guys are onto that really quickly and and they're looking to exploit that really, really quickly. Um, It
1: would be nice to bring it down to kind of the individual level, Pat. How can individuals on their on their PCs, on their tablets, on their phones, uh, protect their privacy, their pictures, their, their banking details, um, their wallets, whatever they hold, their cards and their pay system. Uh, what, what are the prudent steps to take?
2: You have to be very suspicious of any email, even if it is purporting to come from a friend, or uh, whether it's an email or whether it's a text, you know, to, to your phones or or, um, or to your social media, WhatsApp, Facebook, etc., etc. You have to be very suspicious of any requests, um, and even that kind of graduated response of just a, you know an initial "how are you" followed then by a, a sort of a strange request. So, so, very suspicious of those. If you get any requests out of slightly out of the ordinary even, you know, in terms of, uh, hi dad, I'm on holidays, you know, uh, I've, I've I've lost my cards, uh, I have to pay my hotel bill now, can you transfer some money, blah, 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 which is typically what we see this time of year because a fair amount of those ring true in the sense of people are on holidays, etc. That you should always not immediately respond to those, you should look to try and verify those by going back to a known, trusted, alternative means of communication. So if you get that in a text or an email from a strange number, you know, typically... Uh, they, they would say, "Look, I've lost my phone and my wallet. I'm ringing from, you know, a friend's phone or something like that." I, I wouldn't take any action associated with that. I wait until you have actual contact from the person requesting the the the, the, the kind of interaction. Um, you know, don't click or open anything that comes in in your inbox that you're vaguely suspicious of. Um, you know, there's lots of online resources to show you the typical phishing and smishing uh, characteristics that, that that you need to be really really careful of. Um, always use, you know, private and secure networks, don't use public networks to do things like online banking, etc you know, your, your, your bank generally will not request your your pin or your details or anything like that so so, so be very careful and suspicious of any, you know, your account has been compromised, you know, etc etc, and, and you know, rarely don't ever communicate back on the channel that the, you've got those contacts on always pick up the phone, go back to a known good number, you know, go and research the number of AIB Bank or Bank of Ireland or whatever it is, and then ring the help centre and say, "Did you guys just contact me about my contact my account
1: being compromised?" Sure. Compromise? Okay. So uh, a rewarding, business. challenging career awaits. Uh, what What are the courses that cover this? Is it computer science or IT business or what? would yeah, they be looking and, for? And
2: there's, there's lots of directly cyber security related courses now. NTU and Cork have a, an excellent program down there. Uh, Don O'Shea and, and, and all the people uh, down there have an excellent course. Um, TUD so, so, so there, a general computer science uh, course absolutely and then you can, you can evolve into cyber but there's lots of cyber modules, you know direct cyber modules as well and, and you know they're at undergraduate then and at postgraduate level there's the, the, the pressure on skills and talent is only growing in this space you know it's, it's up to about, you, you mentioned 2 million that, that's a slightly like old figure at this stage is probably 3.5 million, 4 wow. million
1: worldwide vacancies uh, around the world in this area
2: yeah, like right now we have vacancies that we're trying to fill for graduates, for people with three, four, five years experience, and and you know having to be really innovative in terms of having to to, to try and so so fill those roles, and it's a constant battle. Okay. So it's it's, it's an area that is dramatically underskilled. Um, and, and my argument would be not only are they, should there be dedicated. Uh, roles in in cybersecurity, but perhaps, you know, given the threat that we're facing, given this, almost every professional course now should have a cyber module whether you're a soldier, whether you're a lawyer whether you're a radio presenter as you're you're doing all of your courses, there should be cyber modules in it because everybody needs to be cyber safe.
1: Wise words Pat, and on the first anniversary of the attack on the HSE systems, uh, we thank you. Pat Larkin CEO of Ward Solutions and board member of Cyber Ireland. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you.
0: Good morning. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Brenderville now on O eight one eight one oh four one oh six Red FM.
1: Twenty one minutes to ten. Hi Mick, if you would please give this a mention. Tonight's gig for Kieran Kramer, as you've mentioned already, is fully sold out. Uh so please don't turn up looking for tickets. But people can still donate to his uh, GoFundMe page, which has helped Kieran recover from severe spinal condition. Uh in early September twenty twenty, uh, Kieran had been uh, uh, I think it was an insect bite that caused uh, all of the trouble for him. Uh, he's pretty much wheelchair bound and trying to recover from severe spinal injury. But tonight's gig, Kieran being so popular, is already sold out. So please don't turn up at the Roaches Down Park hotel looking for tickets, uh, because you won't be able to get in. But you can help if you wish by donating to his GoFundMe page. Help Kieran recover from severe spinal condition. And we wish Kieran Kramer all the very best. Now, thank you for holding PJ McNamara. Good morning to you, sir. Hello, PJ. Hello, good morning, mate. Oh, okay, you're Brighton and this morning. Now, you were working in Capwell Road Depot last night at around half twelve when something strange happened.
3: Yeah. I was, I was standing at the top of the yard and um, I had my back facing down the yard, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the drivers pulled in and he um, he said hello to me. And I went to turn to say hello to him and as I did, it was a huge. Well, no, when I say huge, it was would have been about the size of a, a the size of a, maybe a football, give or take a couple of inches.
4: Mm-hmm. It
3: just zoomed straight across the sky, right? It was a, an emerald green. It, it was a glowing emerald green sphere, right? There was a bit of a break, and behind it, there seemed to be a little bit of a green tail, and it just went whoosh. Straight across the sky. There was no sound. The yard was quiet. All the engines were turned off in the bus and that. The yard was quiet. And it just disappeared uh, over the trees. Now, I've seen meteors and I've seen comets and I'd, I'd watched the skies myself. But I've seen you know, I've seen fireballs in the sky, you know, picking up and that in the atmosphere and stuff like that. I've seen it, but I've never seen anything like that before. It was the weirdest thing. And I was just wondering, did anybody else around that area or farther afield see anything like that?
1: So a bright green orb flashed across the sky. Quite, it was quite visible yeah, now. It
3: was a, uh, yeah, all of it, very visible. You couldn't miss it. It stuck out, it stuck out against the, 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 the dark skylight.
1: But it, was, was it making any other movement but going at the same speed in the same no, direction? No, it went in, you,
3: in one direction and it, it, was, it was going in one direction. It wasn't jumping up and down. Or so you're not making, kind of, you're the the kind of making a UFO
1: there. claim. You're saying that something flashed across the sky at great speed, which could have been a it could have been a so fireball
3: or a color. The sky, it, But it, it was green, and I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a glowing green colour, uh, like an emerald uh, colour. Okay. So, so you think it was a, there was a light or something in, in, in the centre of it, it. It glowed that much. Okay. And like you said, there was a bit of a break, and there seemed to be a little green tail on the end of it. Now, it was gone. It was gone in, in, like it was gone in a matter of seconds. Okay. And in a matter of seconds, but it, it was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Maybe meteors and stuff can, but if it was down that low, if that was a, a, something that size, if it was down that low, you would have heard it break up. There would have been a bang or something to that effect, but this just whooshed straight across the sky.
1: Could you make any estimation of, uh, as to where it would have been over or which direction from Capwell you saw it?
0: Um,
3: well, if in a turn it would have been. My, uh, my north, west, east, south, east and south is, is not great now, but I would have went, I suppose, south, east, uh, uh, south, west, maybe. It just, yeah, it, it it just shot straight across the sky. Okay. The thing I've ever seen.
1: All right. Well, we'll put it out there. If people want to contact us, they can do so. Our number is oh eight one eight one zero four one zero six, or by text or WhatsApp on oh eight six eight one zero four one zero six. Uh, working? In the, are you working in the open there in the Capitol Depot? So you've seen these fireballs and comets and shooting stars before, but nothing like this. Oh yeah,
3: but I've been i been watching I've been watching the sky. I was on with Neil actually one morning talking about an experience I had when I was about twelve years of age concerning a, an orange. Uh, banana
1: shaped object. An orange banana shaped uh, object.
3: Yeah. No, it was when I say banana shape it was like it was like half moon um half moon shape. Right? You know, it was like bent. And as we watched it, it was myself and my two nephews who would have been around the same age as me at the time. We watched it and as we watched it, it was it's dead solid in the sky. But then there was three little orange dots came out of it, much, much smaller than what the thing was itself. And the thing itself then bent, as it was shaped, it bent uh, back up uh, behind the clouds and and disappeared.
1: Are you somebody who believes in, in the existence of extraterrestrial life and intelligence?
3: Well, I believe that the universe is too big for us to be on our own. It's just it's just too big. There's there's surface water on a lot of planets. It might be buried in ice and stuff like that, and that's one of the building blocks of of life itself. I'm not saying that there's. You read some of these things, you know, where you get uh, called the Greys and the Anakin's and all this kind of thing, but uh, I I wouldn't buy into that as such. But I believe there must there has to be life. Now, whether they're capable of, if there is intelligent life, and it's capable of coming this far.
1: Um, yeah, but it's, if, if if there is intelligence li- uh, intelligent life, it's likely to be many, many light years away, isn't it?
3: Oh, it is, of course. Yeah, yeah. And if, if it's such a thing as they can reach here, if it's such a thing as they as they can reach here from, from wherever they, they may be, if they can reach here, they're obviously much more intelligent than we are, which makes them an older, an older species than what we are.
1: Yeah, I was listening. Know? I was yeah. listening recently to a War of the Worlds on Spotify, uh, and I think correctly. Uh, voted the number one exponent of the spoken English language, Mr. Richard Burton. Uh, well, I think he had the greatest voice ever speaking the English language. And I know there are other great voices there like Patrick Stewart and James Earl Jones and those. Um, but... Uh, that War of the Worlds, that whole Martian coming to Earth and, uh, and the thing, Phil Lynott, Phil Linett, uh is on that, uh, and many, many more. Justin Hayward. Uh, if you haven't heard War of the Worlds, it, it's uh, very, very much worth um, just picking it up on Spotify or something. Um, did, did you know? And I'm asked by text to ask you, uh, PJ, that the next uh, that next Tuesday, the U.S. Congress are holding the first public hearing on UFOs, and it's the first one in fifty years.
3: That's right, yeah. Um, well, you know, Operation Blue Book was there, I think it was around the 30s, or no, around the 50s and 60s, Operation Blue Book was around, and they're only coming out now and saying that it was actually there. Mm-hmm. Before that, it, it was, it was um, they denied the existence of it.
1: Is, is this the, um, the Roswell alien?
3: Well, it's more than Roswell, it's, it includes, it includes Roswell. But it it's other um flying emissions into into um UFO reports, And as you've seen on on the um on T V and and on the videos released of these tic tac objects now like crashing into the sea and, and disappearing underneath the water and all that. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a few that they're actually, the American government are actually coming out with a lot of that stuff, dumping that stuff. Now I know around Area 51 and that, they, they want everyone to believe there's UFOs landing and whatnot because they're obviously trying out new weapons and new uh, planes, warplanes and stuff like yeah. that. So it would suit them to believe they put it down to UFOs. Yeah. You know?
1: Well, I suppose sure. for now we're we're more concentrating on uh, the Capwell Road Depot. A brilliantly bright green orb flashing across the sky last night at about half past midnight. Uh, so, if anyone else in the area or further afield have seen it, uh, please get in touch with us on oh eight one eight one zero four one zero six, or by text or WhatsApp oh eight six eight one zero four one zero six. PJ McNamara, thanks very much for coming on the program this morning.
3: Thank you very much, Mike. Have Cheers, a nice day. Thanks.
1: Bye now. No, now bye. To bye now to nine two, bye and, and to Marcel. Marcel, good morning
5: morning. No, How are
1: you? I'm very good. We're bringing happy closure to a story we covered during the week.
5: Yes, we're absolutely ecstatic. Ecstatic.
1: An abduction of a horse.
5: Wednesday week. She was stolen Wednesday at ten past six and we located well, the detectives and Sergeant Stephen and Sergeant Terry Um. They, they located, and there was an undercover cop. Um, he's gone by Spud. I'm, I don't really know this man personally, but the work they did was absolutely tremendous. I know tremendous. a
1: cop called Spud, but he's retired now. Right.
5: Okay. I don't
1: know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, decent skin. skin. Maybe, he, maybe he went and uh, and got reinvigorated and found the horse. But look, it's a happy ending. That horse had left a 12-year-old absolutely distraught.
5: Yes, she's absolutely over the moon. She she wants to be able to thank you all as well. She wants to come on and thank you all.
1: It's it's not something that happens every day that that a a mayor like that is, is stolen in broad daylight. And um, you know we we heard in that interview that uh, that the, the mayor is is it's more a family pet. The, the mayor can't even be ridden because it's, it's it has some injuries or whatever. So it's just a family pet.
5: Yeah, she's just a pet. Um, she's twenty years old, and she's not risable. She's not fit for breeding either. Um, She's—we just want her just to have a happy retirement, basically.
1: Okay, and what uh, what can you do if anything to uh, ensure this won't happen again?
5: <laughs> I don't really want to say that over air, but um, <laughs> she will not be going anywhere. Never again. This will not happen again. So she's um, been looked after. She is 150% well looked after,
1: 150%. Okay, I'm sure you'll appreciate her all the more now that she's back. The horse that went missing on Monday in Glenville now found uh, an undercover cop called Spud involved in the process. Uh, maybe he wanted to stay undercover and we've given away his identity now. Uh, but there's one <laughs> very distraught 12-year-old who's now ecstatically happy.
5: She's absolutely off She wants to have a quick word. As well as oh, brilliant. Say. Okay,
1: put her on.
6: I just want to thank everyone for helping find our mayor and my school
1: friends. Oh, fantastic. Everybody was out looking and uh, you were very, very upset. You were too upset to come on and talk a few days ago, weren't you? Yeah,
6: I'm delighted now that we have her back and
1: she's safe. Fabulous. Are you going to spend a lot more time with her now? Yeah, we'll be down
5: there every day
1: with her. Oh, fantastic. Well done. We're delighted for you as well. Thanks a million guys thank you so much. and we're glad, thank we, you. glad we could be of service. And
5: we want to thank all the public as well for all their shares and comments and for people around that were handing out flyers and the local shops and extended shops. We want to thank all and each and every one of you. You don't know how much you have lifted our hearts.
0: We'll leave it at that. Thank you so much guys.
5: Thank Good you. morning. Thank
0: you to Neil now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red F.M.
1: 6 minutes to 10 o'clock and a text from Marie to uh, 0868104106. I was out with my nephew last night in the farm and we saw something flashing in the sky. It was a white light and went out in a flash. It definitely wasn't a falling star. Uh, not sure uh, what it was and this was in Dunmanway, but not green now, but white. Uh, and that was in the Dunmanway area. Any more strange sightings in the sky last night, please do get in touch with the program. Now, bringing closure to another story we covered during the week, Lisa is all set for you revision hi lisa
7: good morning how are you very
1: good now you got all of the clothes you needed because you were in a bit of a sweat for these clothes
7: i was indeed they arrived tuesday lunchtime. i was never so happy to see a courier in my life
1: and do you think we had anything to do with that or was just coincidence
7: um i honestly don't know i think you definitely did have like you know kind of i I literally was i had gotten a message saying i'd have them within 48 hours but it never told me which 48 hours and from when. Yeah. So I definitely think you, you guys helped me a lot. So thank you so much for that.
1: Okay, and the clothes are important tonight because, uh, you know, if you're into Eurovision, you're into all the glamming up and all that, the clothes are important.
7: Oh, absolutely. You have to look your best.
1: You're travelling today, are, are you? In our
7: bags and flags are with us. We're going to look fabulous and we're going to have a really, really good time and enjoy
1: the show. You're travelling today. What's the route?
7: Um, so we're travelling from Cork, Cork to Milan and then the train from Milan to Turin.
1: Oh, you're not giving yourself any time to acclimatise or anything. Straight over and straight to the Eurovision.
7: Absolutely. We'll acclimatise
1: tomorrow. How will we spot you on TV? Do you have any flag or anything you can...
7: Oh, we have our Irish flags with us. You won't be able to, like, we'll be waving them like lunatics.
1: And, um, there's a certain confidence that she'll progress to the, uh, you know, to the final. Are you, going, are you guys going to be disappointed if that doesn't happen?
7: I, I really do have hope that she will. Like, I mean, she's really improved. She's gone down really well in rehearsals. Um... Yeah, we'll be a little disappointed if she doesn't because, I mean, we haven't been in the finals in a while. So it would be really good and it would make it extra special. But we're going to be there to celebrate either way.
1: Yeah. Now, this the song apparently is so much fun. I've only heard it once. Uh, but they've now changed the arrangement slightly. She's changed her outfit as well. Uh, is it mm-hmm. is it more than just an audio thing? This is a visual show more than anything else, really, isn't it?
7: It's everything. It's about the performance. You know, it's like... The, the songs go in and you can hear the, sh- the songs online, you know, way before Eurovision even hits when the country starts selecting them. They, they put them up and you can hear them. But it's about the performance on the night and that's, that's, what, that's what it's about. It's about the song mostly, but it's also about the performance. So it's really important.
1: Okay. Ladbrook's have odds of 300 to 1, by the way, for Ireland uh, to... Uh, no, it's, is that to progress or to win? Probably to I win. I think that's
7: probably to win. I'd say that's probably to win. Yeah. I, f- I don't think we're winning. But I'm hoping that we
1: get through to the final. So does that mean you've got two sets of tickets then? One for tonight and one for the final?
7: No, the plan for Saturday is is they do a Eurovision village as well where they have big screens and you can gather together and have drinks and just watch everything as a group. So we're going to go, and it's in this park this year. So we're going to go there on Saturday night.
1: Okay, if Ukraine wins, is that a political nod?
7: Uh, Look, I'm all for supporting Ukraine. Their song is good. There, I personally believe there are a lot of better songs out there, but if they win, that's the that's the vote of the people. Look, I know there's the panel vote, but the text vote is the one that is the game changer, and that would be the vote of all of Europe. And so, your which, your tip to win, Lisa? See, I I really like Norway only because the song is so fun, but there's so many other good songs but again I wait to see all the performances so I'll wait and see the final tonight and then I'll pick my winner All
1: right, well done Uh, best of luck with the travel hope you get there okay Uh, and hope we can spot you on TV uh, heading today to Eurovision. Thanks a million, Lisa. Glad you got your toes you
5: in time. So and help you
7: take care.
1: Thanks a million. All the best. Bye bye. Nice. Coming up to two minutes to ten with News on the Way. I'm
7: Rory. And I'm Valerie. And you can join us for the very best in local, national, and international sport every weekend on the Big Red Bench.
0: That's the Big Red Bench. Every Saturday and Sunday from six on Cork's Red FM. Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM.
1: And a very good morning. This is Mick Mulcahy coming up on 7 minutes past 10. And I'm joined on line two by travel expert Owen Curry, who's always a delight to talk to. Hi, Owen. That's a good
8: introduction. You put me in good humour for the day. Not everyone says that
1: about me. It's oh. great It's great when you talk to a person who has a command of the subject topic. Uh, and um, I, I think, you know, as much as this uh, has been waited for, uh, the mask um, requirement on European flights and in airports being removed on Monday is a certain milestone in the, in the pandemic, I suppose, in, in the two and a half years. Uh, it's about two years ago s- since we predicted masks would become a part of our everyday lives. Now it seems we are uh, slipping the mask
8: yeah but don't put your mask your collection of masks in the attic yes um, we have a little bit to go on this because what the two European agencies, the ECDC and the ECAC one of them, the ECDC collates the medicine statistics uh, the figures, the other one looks after aviation regulation and uh, aviation um,
1: sorry old, we're, we're, we're losing you there, can you move or maybe we can call you back I will try, I will try moving that's, that's clear now
8: Yeah okay and uh, the two European agencies yesterday said that from Monday countries can can remove the requirement for masks but it's now back with the destinations and with the airlines and it's quite clear it's going to be a little bit more complicated than just parking
1: the mask. Okay so if you're going to an airport and it's an Irish airport and you're leaving uh, from Cork Dublin or Shannon or Waterford or wherever you're leaving from Nock maybe uh, you don't have to wear a mask from Monday anymore.
8: No, it's not clear as that. We have to wait for the Irish aviation authorities to make that clear. Oddly enough, masks are still mandatory in the airports, but they aren't being worn. You'll go through Dublin or Cork Airport and you'll get lots of announcements about them. But where it is being enforced and enforced rigidly is you're not getting on a flight without a mask. That applies in countries where they're less rigorous about masking as well as the ones that have a lot of masking regulations. You will be at the board at the boarding gate denied. It's happened to me uh, in Dublin Airport that people have come to me looking for masks uh, usually I usually have a supply of them, but I'm not advertising the fact uh, to say they have been refused boarding, denied boarding on Ryanair or Aer Lingus. It doesn't make any difference. Now, what we've seen in the last few weeks, and this goes back to Easter, some of the listeners will remember a judge in Orlando uh, effectively overturning America's aviation masking policy. Internal flights within America, uh, are able, the passengers are able to fly without masks. And some of the airlines have said if the destination does not require masking, will allow you board. Finnair is an example, Brussels is another example. But Ryanair and Aer Lingus are still enforcing masking, and yeah, this is important. Even um, this weekend, they will be enforcing masking, and in, when, you, when it comes to Monday, it will be really dependent on the destination you go to. Looking through the small print of what we saw yesterday, that statement yesterday, the countries that have a masking requirement on public transport when you get there are the ones where you would still require a mask to fly to examples of that would be austria cyprus czech republic estonia france germany greece italy latvia lithuania luxembourg malta netherlands portugal and spain portugal and spain huge for us they're really important destinations so it is a case that While this isn't the uh, end, it's the beginning of the end As the great uh, Sean O'Casey quote that was swiped by Winston Churchill goes, uh, by the summer I'd expect things would be a lot clearer, but really Monday is not Liberation Day for masks on aviation yet.
1: Okay, that's that's a, a good term, Liberation Day. So are you saying that if the destination is a masked destination, Ryanair and Aer Lingus will enforce masks on the flight or only when you land?
8: Uh, they will be enforced on the flight as well. And it's not just a mask destination, it's a mask on public transport destination. For okay. so given example, Brussels uh, enforces masks on public transportation. The rest of Belgium does not. So you're also looking at very complicated situations where, uh, you know, what we've seen during COVID is local regions uh, adopting more, usually uh, uh, more severe policies than the national government. Um, and we had a situation, listeners might remember, where Canary had a different policy from Gran Canaria um, in terms of their COVID masking restrictions. What we'll see now is the airline following the national policy. The reopen EU app, which is a really important app to have on your phone because it updates most frequently of all the apps and it's free. Uh, there are lots of people charging for information, but this is a EU initiative. Um, that's the one to keep an eye on whether you, want, whether you require masks when you get there. As for, and if you're flying there in theory, uh, Ryanair will allow you um, not to wear a mask on the flight. Uh, that will be implemented from Monday, I'm assured but of that, by Ryanair. Aer Lingus are looking for something different. They're looking for a clearer direction from the Irish government as to what our uh, policy on masking in aviation is. Because Irish airlines are subject to Irish aviation authorities, not European
1: ones. Okay, so all of this really takes account of the latest developments in the progression of the pandemic or the dying off of the pandemic, but in particular, the levels of vaccination and you would hope now the levels of naturally acquired immunity in the population.
8: You see, we fly like once a day or fly back in a fortnight. So the cabin crew are... Uh, flying uh, all, all day long from uh, country to country, some of them with high levels of incidence, the, uh, the data that you've just referred to, some of them with lower levels of incidence. So the crew Unions, airlines, are going to be looking at their staff and saying, well, if there's a general policy of dropping masks, we're not putting our staff in danger. We're not putting uh, people into even, you know, the COVID is no longer killing at the level that it did, thankfully, back in 2020. But a COVID absence can cause havoc, with rastering. So from an airline point of view, from a cabin uh, crew point of view, they will be dragging their heels are very cautious not to, remo- not to allow passengers to remove masks willy-nilly so what we see and let's reiterate what happened yesterday two agencies ecdc and acac said from monday individual countries can remove the requirement for masks individual airlines can remove the requirement for masks but it's back in their court and it will be the airlines that, uh, that will decide in the end
1: okay lots of people go to the national airlines of countries uh, yes. for instance you might go to emirates if you're going to Dubai. you might go to uh, uh, Qatar Airways, Airways, if you're flying to Doha, uh, you you might go on to, uh, you know, if you're flying to Abu Dhabi, uh, you'll you go on to that national airline to look for the uh, masking or the COVID cert requirements. Is there a central uh, travel resource where people, if you're going to Portugal, going to Spain, things might be different, where you can find out what you need and whether you need a PCR or how long your cert uh, needs to be, uh, how old needs to be, uh, to be valid?
8: Okay, the, the best one uh, for Europe is, as I say, reopen the EU, but that only applies to the EU twenty seven. The best one internationally is IATA, um, the international. It's sort of the FIFA of aviation, and the real problem has been since the you know since things started uh, changing and being updated that some of the websites, even the the very good. Uh, designated ones have been slower to pick up the information. As I say, the, you're you're very very sound advice. Go to the national airline. Um, they're usually the first to learn. Airline. This would be the first to learn. If they, you know, at the time we had locator form restrictions in Ireland, they were the first to learn about it and put it on their website. So very good rule of thumb. If you're, looking at, um, desti- if you're looking at a destination, go to the National Airline for that destination. If there isn't a National Airline, as in the case of the United States, uh, go into the individual wa- uh, airline website because we have certainly, since the changing of the masking regulations in America, we have different policies by the different airlines. And obviously, internal flights have a different policy from international flights.
1: Okay, here's a cheeky question. Is, is Aer Lingus our National Airline or is Ryanair now?
8: that is a good question because Ryanair are by far the market share leader they have uh, they were about 4 to 3 4 percentage points ahead of Aer Lingus in the market share out of Ireland before the pandemic they've increased that to about 8 percentage points headquartered uh, in, in Dublin as well Headquartered uh, in Dublin and Ryan, Michael O'Leary of course makes uh, great, uh, he, he's, he, he does declare, I, he is Ireland's national airline, um, the uh, Aer Lingus is privatised, there is no government ownership, it's actually owned out of Spain, so anyone who wants uh, a little bit of the jousting that goes on between Ryanair and Aer Lingus, uh, just look at the, the two Twitter accounts when they go to battle every now and again and it's good fun because they're both very cheeky.
1: Okay, now we've we, we've heard from uh, government sources that there is a massive backlog in the processing of passports. Uh, what advice do you give to people who are planning for holidays? Uh, you know, even if you're planning for June, July, August, uh, you need to be in the passport queue by now, don't you?
8: Very much. Jump early. Now, the... the, the demographics or the data of passports is very interesting the peak month is always may uh, historically may is when people have you know, they might have booked in january but may is when they started looking at expiry dates and um, april is the second june is the third if you go down to december january very low levels really worrying we were we were we had this problem back in december and january there's another really worrying thing if you were in the system and it's coming close to your takeoff date. You uh, have no facility for going into the emergency uh, system. There isn't a facility for applying uh, for an emergency meeting or an emergency interview. And that is denied to you if you're already in the system. What we've seen happen is they, uh, people have been putting in their departure date and it's been the clock has wound down, but a lot of people have been getting the passport right uh, probably a day before when the stress levels are running very high, they are being delivered, but there's a huge backlog. There's not, nothing can be done to switch it on to to clear it very quickly. There are a couple of very important advice points though. uh, One of the things that uh, that the pandemic created is the number of people whose passport had run out beyond five years. Now, it sounds a long time, but if you've lost three years to COVID, it isn't. And people went to apply online and found that because their previous passport has expired by five, if, uh, by five years, they no longer can apply online. There aren't problems applying online, remember. It's where if you have to go through the system of uh, looking for effectively a new passport, that's where the problems are. Another, the other major problem is newborn babies. Um, one of the things that has changed is that the children's passport is now a five-year passport, not a three-year passport. Uh, that happened uh, a couple of years ago, but that's a really big, uh, very, very important for those with families. And with a newborn baby, you do not have to wait for your PPS number before you apply. A lot of people thought that was the case. It takes a while to get the PPS number, and then it takes a long while to get your passport as soon as the baby's born. Put the passport application in, and uh, those people listening this morning who haven't yet got a PPS number for their newborn, get the passport application in now. There's a big backlog. It's going to take a while to clear it, but um, it's it, there's no quick fix for this. Really, the passport. It's a hugely important document. I've got lots of personal correspondence saying, can I travel with a newborn baby and without a passport? Absolutely not. That's what passports are for with child trafficking and all of that. It's a valuable document. The Irish passport gets you into... Um, one of the it's one of the most powerful passports in the world It gets you to one hundred and eighty seven countries without a visa and they can't really be hurried and they can't really be speeded up for the issuing of such an important legal document
1: okay good advice there now uh in holidaying in general on we're we're seeing you know the cruise liners are co- are coming back into into cove uh the cruise industry itself is advertising heavily uh the flights are full. Uh, they're not as cheap as they used to be, but the hotels here, uh, as well, despite having the extended nine percent VAT regime, uh, don't seem to be coming down in price. Are we pricing ourselves out of the staycation now?
8: A bit of uh, chasing a margin going on. The just uh, price pressure is on car hire. It's quite um, well, the car hire industry normally works where they buy a lot of big fleets in January, uh, sell it off at the end of the year, make a lot off of profit July August, and um, you sustain a loss sometimes through April May. What they did was they got caught so badly in 2020 that their fruit buying is way down this year. So car hire prices is the biggest uh, single price issue. Affecting holidays, I know people who would normally book, look at the price of a flight, then the price of the hotel, then the price of the car hire. They're looking at the price of the car hire first and building their holiday around that. The hotel beds issue, there's a bit of chasing of margin because hoteliers, first of all, have the sustained losses. And also they're facing the huge price increases that all of us are facing um, at, uh, for heating, home heating, all of that sort of thing. The um, seats were interesting because there was certainly when the, the very ambitious inventory went into the system, a lot of seats went into the system, there seemed to be a lot of chasing of margin for July and August. Now, I noticed that July prices have slipped down a little bit. Uh, that means that they weren't getting the prices that they, that they were expecting. The way it works is computer makes a decision. If a certain number of seats haven't been sold two months in advance, a few more are released at a lower price. That's the way it works. Nobody's actually scratching their head over this the computer is built to do that but um August price is still running quite high and'm not I'm, I'm, I'm with such capacity in there I would be surprised if better prices didn't show up to somewhere. Keep an eye on new destinations. Keep an eye on places. There's a couple of interesting new destinations out of Dublin. Not so many out of Cork, but a few interesting destinations like Alguero and Sardinia, Nîmes and France, and uh, um, Madeira and Portugal uh, have all... They're, they're, they're new to the system, and they're generally new to the system, tends to get a, to not to attract the level of bookings, and the prices can be cost a little bit lower. The home holiday market... Always complaints about this, but they will charge what they can get. It's it's really um, the market decides the price, and we tend to what we what tended to happen, particularly after the shock of the global financial recession, is that Irish hotels, in particular, went after a sort of a higher end market where they we our second biggest um, inbound destination is the United States, and the level of the product. Uh, first of all, there was a higher end level of product uh, put into the market, so even uh, the home holiday makers will find they're you know they're paying a little bit more than they'd expect to. Um, but the second thing is that the. So the very more basic two-star stuff, um, the stuff that would have been trendy in the 80s and 90s that is no longer trendy, listeners will be able to name hotels, the length of breadth of the country and towns that everybody used to go to in the 80s and 90s and just didn't stay with the game, didn't keep investing. We have the Ukrainian uh, refugee uh, situation taking up some of, uh, quite a few of those beds. So a squeeze from both sides there. Uh, I'm not sure if we will see home holidays, um, home holiday levels at the hotel side coming down um, to the level that the market would like. Um, but certainly they they, they have been, Um, They have been reporting, bookings have been uh, Uh, quite strong. The big problem with hotels has been service levels and
1: staffing. Oh, and on on this, the first anniversary of the uh, hacking attack uh, to the HSC, is there any personal tip or hack, uh, you know, to abuse the cliché that uh, a person can use when booking a flight? You often hear if you book a Tuesday, uh, Wednesday morning, late Tuesday night at at half past two, uh, you, you, you get the computer dumping availability. Are there any personal hacks you can do to ensure the best fare is achieved by you?
9: Saturday
8: night, midnight, that's when the prices come down. About six weeks to go, the uh, computer will make a decision, oh, we've only sold a certain percentage at this uh, higher uh, at, at this high price. So let's uh, incentivize uh, by putting seven or eight or 20 seats in at a lower price. Sometimes you go in a minute to mid- midnight, it's higher, than when you go a minute past, often you go in, it's gone up as well in the other direction. Um, that is very basic. The airlines have um, become much more sophisticated um, by the months um, through, through the pandemic and uh, as they're watching how the return to flying comes. So it's not really easy. It's like trying to beat the bookie. Um, it's not that easy to, uh, to work out uh, a way of getting a few bob off your flights. Other, the other, um, the main uh, hack, we I want to a better word, is exactly what I said. Keep an eye on places that uh, there's a lot of capacity, that there are competitor airlines, uh, sometimes too much capacity. Uh, Croatia is an example. We have new routes into Croatia this year. Croatia hit with the double whammy. They're very dependent on the Russian market. None of those Russians are coming. So the beds will be freed up by the absence of Russians and the extra capacity out of Ireland will give you a little bit of leeway there. Our new routes, um, as I say, places like Algaro and And Madeira, they're all things to watch.
1: Our most popular routes, I suppose, are once again the Canaries south of Spain, Portuguese Algarve, without a doubt Malaga, Faro um,
8: is an interesting uh, Spain books stronger than Portugal um, and that's quite a, one of the more interesting things that's happened this year, um, it might all rectify itself July, August um, it's certainly big with families um, uh, but the trunk route uh, the, then huge numbers of flights that we have are, as you say, uh, to MAGA, to uh, Faro, to Pama de Mallorca. Um, the the Canaries, uh, Lanzarote, and Gran Canaria are our two big ones. Um, internationally, if you travel, if you look at the stats going into the Gran Canaria, going into uh, Canary Islands, Gran Canaria is the number one market for almost every. Uh, country except Ireland, Lanzarote is the number one for Ireland. It's this particular love affair we have with them. And um, if you want to go down, then uh, Tenerife le- less popular and Fuerteventura quieter, more beachy. All of that um, tends to be where the least people go and where the best prices are got. Not just in flight wise, but also on the ground. Um, but as I say. Um, Greece an interesting one as well, that's, uh, that's showing up quite well in the bookings this year, they do what they do very well, they're very good at the family market, and we have a couple of new routes into Greece.
1: Okay, uh, I've got a text that says, uh, I go to Portugal now, it's a little more expensive, but the food is by far superior to what we get uh, as standard fare in Spain, will that be correct?
8: Um, that's, uh, you're you're going to get me in so much trouble. <laughs> you can't say. i have got to get the saying that the Italians uh, can cook and the uh, Portuguese can and the Spanish can cook. The reality is that um, the quality of food uh, has hugely increased. You know, there, there was... In Europe of 20 years ago, it was very much uh, feel the wit. Uh, what we've seen is everybody chasing local produce, trying to differentiate themselves on food. Because back in the 90s, food was not a reason you decided to go somewhere. Suddenly it has become, just look at our television sets, what used to be travel programs like No Frontiers and Wish You Were Here, they've all gone. We now have travel programs masquerading as food programs. Sure. Food has become a decision maker. And when food becomes a decision maker, it leads the decision you've got this amazing um, inventiveness and there's no shortage of farmers and uh, wine producers and olive growers and all of that around you in Portugal and Spain in a way that you don't get in more Northern European uh, destinations. The other really important thing is hugely uh, famous play- regions for their food. And uh, you, you know, you've instanced Portugal, the Alentejo region in, in Portugal is, has by far the best food, the best wine, although Porto Douro uh, Valley will compete with that but they are the region that gets the least uh, tourists and they have, as a result, the best uh, price, uh, best accommodation for prices and, of course, the Portuguese road system, a bit like our road system, uh, got huge investment so it no longer takes uh, six hours to drive um, to Across the, the Algarve, port, yeah. so It's down to, down to one and a half, you know? Fine, so is, finally,
1: but, Owen Corrie, travel expert, because we're, we're talking for quite a long time now. What's the situation in Dublin Airport? What are the queues down to? Because a lot of people will be leaving, even Cork people, a lot of them will be going long haul are going on their holidays from Dublin Airport?
8: The the queue times are brilliant. They're excellent at the moment, but don't count on them. Uh, You're talking five, ten minutes to get through security queues today. It can still slide up to an hour. The reason it can slide up to an hour is COVID absences and rostering is a nightmare because they're already short-staffed. Now, this is a shared problem. Everybody says Dublin airport security queues. But um, right across Europe, the uh, uh, Council of Airports across Europe issued a statement last week saying that uh, security queues is an international problem. And we have um, queues of, you know, in some cases, three or four hours in uh, airports and um, smaller regional airports, where if there's a big number of COVID absences, there's no real place for them to okay. turn. So it is a big problem. It's not going away. It's fine at the moment, but don't count on it. All
1: out. right. So the four hour, three hour, four hour waits in Dublin Airport are over now.
8: Yeah, we okay. never really were to four hours, unless you're counting the check in bag as well. The advice still is. Uh, three, two uh, two and a half hours for the short haul three and a half hours for long haul I would stick firmly to that uh, hopefully you'll breeze through and you'll have a nice pleasant cup of coffee on the side
1: as I said at the beginning, always a pleasure. Owen Corey, thank you for joining oh, us on the programme. Always to talk. Thanks. Thank much. you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Uh, now, just before we leave the topic, Aer Lingus um, have increased flights out of Cork Airport, but fares on airlines worldwide are set for inevitable rises as the travel sector braces for the effects of the soaring cost of aviation fuel. The chief executive of Ireland's national airline has warned. Airline boss Lynn Embleton said fuel costs represent about 25 to 30% of the overall costs facing airlines and while they can offset shocks caused by sudden rises in oil prices by buying ahead it's only a matter of time before air, air fares have to go up when fuel price goes up it's inevitable that eventually we pass through to cons- uh, consumers. It doesn't happen immediately, but you would expect the industry to recover those costs. Uh, and uh, my thanks once again to Owen Curry, travel expert, with the time just turning ten uh,
0: 10.30. Get it off your chest. Text The Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM.
1: Laura is on line one. Good morning, Laura. Thank you for holding. Hi, good thank you for holding, by the way.
10: Not at all, thank
1: you. Now, you're finishing up uh, a master's degree in prepping for a summer of a 40-hour work week uh, to complete your education and cover the costs. And uh, uh, as there is this time of year, uh, a huge interest in the services provided by Susie and in an interaction with Susie from students, uh, we said we'd bring you on the air to tell us your story. What exactly went on? So, basically,
10: it was a, it was a very kind of long process. So I filled out my application for my master's in July of 2021 and at the time I I didn't know whether there was a difference in the undergraduate grant uh, between the postgrad and the undergraduate grant or whether it was the same or what the story was and I couldn't seem to find any sort of information on the SUSE website so I said like, look I'll just fill out the application and like they'll get back to me you know and I'll find out that, that way and they got back to me and they said that you know, there was, like, no mistakes on the letter or anything. They said, yeah, I got the full, uh, the grant for my um, postgraduate that I would be starting that September and that all my fees would be paid off, which was about six grand, and that I would also be getting €336 Euro into my bank account. Every month? Um, every, per month, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So, I was absolutely delighted. Like, I I had recently quit my job working as a customer service agent, um, that May because it was impacting my health a lot, including physical and mental. Like in January, I had ended up with a trapped nerve from sitting down for so long and all of that sort of thing. So I decided to take a break from working as soon as I had enough money to do so. Um, and the fact that I got Suzy then meant, you know, oh, I could take my time finding a job, get myself back on track, you know, focus on my studies as much as possible as well. So it was really like a very good safety net for me. Um, so no, I didn't think about it at all until pretty much October when I realised that my fees hadn't were still up on the UCC website. They hadn't been paid. Nothing had changed. Um, I also hadn't received any money into my bank account, and I should have received something into my bank by then. But I had heard through the grapevines that Susie were having a lot of technical difficulties that year. And that students were being delayed and getting paid, and some students had had their fees paid off, and all that sort of I said, all right. So
1: you didn't think too much um, of it?
10: No, didn't think too much of it. I was like, look, these things happen, whatever, I'm sure it'll be sorted in the next few weeks. But by the end of October, then, I was like, no, something's definitely not right here. I know, my, like, my sister also got the grant, she was in, she's an undergraduate student. She'd gotten her payment in, all of her fees were sorted, and... A few other people I knew around the place were also sorted, and I was like, no, there's definitely something wrong. But well, yours weren't, and now so, you're unemployed. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I was also, I, you know, I was a full month into my course as well at this stage, you know. Um, so it was a bit, bit you know, a bit, um, bit hectic, uh, really. So I decided to ring their help desk. Um, it was around, I think it was around the end of October, I rang. And I basically just explained my story. I was like, look, I got a letter in July all my fees should have been paid off by now, I should have also received some money into my bank account, yada, yada. And she, the girl asked me, she was like, are you undergraduate or postgraduate? And I was like, I'm postgraduate. And she was like, okay, I need to check a few things with that. Put me on hold for a few minutes, came back, and she said, okay, so the grant with the postgraduate is actually you only get roughly half of your fees paid off, which would be about €3,500, leaving me to pay off a further 3000 So
1: you shouldn't have got like, that letter then?
10: Yeah, I was like, but I got a letter in July stating very much the opposite, that all of my fees paid off and, you know, I'd be getting money into my bank, like, I was like, I would never have taken, I would never have started this course without that, you know, if I knew that I was only getting €3,500, I would have taken another year off and worked for another year so I could fully pay off all the fees without any worries. Uh And I said that to her and she was like, okay, look, all I can do is send off an internal review and you'll be sent a letter in a few weeks. So I was like, okay, that's fine. Um... We ended the call there, and I think it was about about 10 days later or something, we got a letter asking for further documentation from my parents. So there was a big rush to kind of get that sorted as quickly as possible. We managed to get all the documents that were needed. It was something like to do with my mom's pay and then my dad's like previous um, dole payments or something like that. I can't, I can't even remember specifically what it was, but we sent it all off anyway. And I just I don't know I had this awful feeling I was just like I know they're not going to they're not going to give me what they what they promised in July I just I just had this awful feeling like um, so it was about I think it was about two weeks uh, two weeks later maybe or maybe another ten days later I got uh, a letter again and it was just so vague it just didn't give me any information at all it basically said nothing has change in terms of your grant so no changes to the original
1: decision but but changes to the original letter and the promise of that letter
10: yeah exactly like it was very just just vague and I was like that tells me literally nothing it doesn't tell me anything at all so I was very pissed off at this stage and so I rang the help desk again and I was speaking to a different person this time and again I repeated my story and I said that an internal review was sent off and I sent documents back blah 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 and again, he asked me the same question, are you undergraduate or postgraduate? And was like, I'm postgraduate. Uh. And again, he went off, checked with his supervisor, came back, said the exact same thing the previous girl had said to me, and he was like, look, the grant for the postgraduate is just at €3,500. And like, I was I was raging, and I was on the verge of tears, and I was like, look, this is an absolute joke. Like, it, this was, you know, this was November now at this stage, maybe even coming into December, like... And, you know, I've, that's basically halfway through my course. I still had no job. I was, I was really struggling. to. F- I, like, I'd been applying for jobs all along, but either I wasn't hearing back from people or my interviews were unsuccessful. It, I was just having very bad luck in finding a job, so I was very stressed out. And he said, look, I understand your situation. He was like, look, I was... He, oh, sorry, <laughs> there's more to that. It gets worse. Um, he was like, look, I can see here that you were actually sent the wrong letter in July and that a corrected letter stating that you're only eligible to receive the 3,500 euros should have been sent, but it never was. And I was just completely, honestly, in shock when I heard that. I was like, what kind of carelessness and just absolute incompetence is that? Like, you know, leaving, giving students, like, the complete wrong information and then leaving them in debt, you know, four or five months later, which I just thought was ridiculous. So he said, look, I would highly encourage you to fill out a formal complaint. He showed me how to do it. He was very helpful. Um, So I did that. I I wrote out a big complaint, um, sent it off to Susie via their um, email address. And I got like a case number and stuff about 24 hours later so that it was being reviewed. So
1: they're they're going to call it a technical error, aren't they?
10: they? They didn't even say, they just said it was an error in the end. They didn't even specify what kind of an error it was. They were just like, like they sent me they sent me a reply, and it was very like they. They started their reply with being like, um, "Oh, here's a link to information about the postgraduate grant," which I thought was very kind of patronizing, to be honest. Um, it seems like it almost seemed like an automatic email that was sent out rather than someone actually dealing with my case, but it was it was hard to tell. And then the next part of the email, they were just like, um, "We we reviewed your application and." There was an error, and the wrong letter was sent out. We apologise for the inconvenience. Okay, so but now,
1: was, now you're committed to your course. You are, yes. you're duty bound it to was, pay the fees.
10: December now. How,
1: how how did you manage without a job? To, I, I assume you didn't drop out and that you paid the fees or got got the money somehow, did you?
10: No, so I like I was lucky enough. Like I live with my boyfriend. He was working full time at the time, so he was able to help me out with like the bills and stuff like that. In terms of the fees, like UCC hadn't actually contacted me about late fees or anything like that, but the fees were just there waiting to be paid on the kind of uh, on the admin site. So I said, like, I was talking to my parents about this, um, because obviously they were very, con- very concerned. I was like, look, I'm going to wait until the UCC contact me. I'm not paying anything until the UCC contact me. Um, so Christmas rolled around. That was fine and then January rolled around. Like, I'd, I had saved off my own money from working previously, so I still had some savings in my account to, to get me by on a daily basis. Um, and again, my boyfriend was helping me out with fees, so I was, I was very lucky in that regard that I had that support. If I hadn't had that support, it would have been an, a very different story altogether. I probably would have ended up dropping out of the course and moving back home and finding a job at home, you know? Um, so January rolled around then, and I was getting, I got an email from the saying that if I didn't pay my fees by a certain time, um, I would lose access to the library and blah blah blah. So I was like, okay, grant. Now, now I'll take action. So, luckily, my parents were able to draw out a loan for me, and they provided me with the fund that they they drew about three grand, and I had about eight hundred ish of myself saved up still. Um, so I was able to gradually pay off the fees. I was <laughs> in contact um, with the fees office in UCC, and uh, they were able to kind of give me an extension on paying the fees until late March. So I was able to take my time. Once again, I was still applying for jobs, was still being very unsuccessful in my job hunt. So, but at least, you know, I had that loan in my in my bank account from my parents, which I was very fortunate to have, like. Okay,
1: so um, you're still in UCC, yeah?
10: Yeah, still in UCC. I'm, I just finished my classes there last week. Um, so I do finally have a job now, which I'm waiting to kind of start um, in the next week, hopefully. Um, all my fees are paid off but you know like I still have to obviously
1: eventually pay off that, that debt to your parents yeah yeah so the yeah, the, le- exactly. the letter you, sh- you shouldn't have got put you in a situation where you had confidence to give up a job uh, then it's a mistake yeah. then then there's no reparation uh, I'm not sure there's anything they could do because uh, they'd be breaking their own rules if they did it and they just could exactly. a- admit a technical or, or just an error uh, but it yeah. certainly puts you uh, in, in the way of hardship shall we say
10: yeah no absolutely and like I like I I put I put that up on Twitter because I was like, look, I'm not taking any legal action against them, and like I feel like like I know so many people around the country have had absolute horror stories about Susie as well, and I just kind of wanted to add to it. I was like, look, this is the situation they put me. I know they put other people in horrible positions, and even if you like, there there's so many people who commented under my under my um, post. Like i I saw last night that there was this one girl who said her and her brother under the same household income, her brother got the grant and she didn't receive anything because they didn't recognize her for whatever reason as being on the same household. And this was back in 2014 and she ended up having to put herself in 20 grand of debt that she's still currently paying back to the bank, which is just Mm. absolute... That's a horror
1: story. In the interest of balance, we have to recognize the, the good work that Susie does and the fact that it is a conduit oh, for, for, for mean, many people to access yeah. third-level education whose parents can't afford to pay for or borrow for those courses.
10: Of course. Like in, like, uh, when I, I remember when I started in, in, in my first year of college, in my undergraduate, I had no problem with, with anything to do with Susie. It was perfectly fine, very smooth sailing. I was very pissed off with them when I was in second year because my nan had passed away when I was in my leaving cert. And um, the will only came through when I was in second year college, and of course, because that came through into my parents' account, we were over the threshold, and I didn't get any Susie okay. at all so i was I was stuck. i like i I thank God I had' worked I'd been working um with Fexco for like two years at that stage, and I was able to continue working with them Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but like you know being in college four days a week full time, and then having to work nine to five Friday, Saturday, Sunday back, like, and I work, I worked, like, I'm from Carstavine, down in South Kerry, like, so I had to travel from Cork to Kerry every weekend, not to work, and then come back to college, like, so it was very stressful. And, and,
1: and when you were finally day. unleashed upon the world, uh, Laura, what what, <laughs> what, 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 to the employment opportunities of the world, what will you be a Masters in?
10: So I'll actually be, I'm doing a Masters in Women's Studies, which doesn't really technically qualify me for anything, uh, but, you know, I, I went to college because I wanted to study something that I liked and that I, re- I, just, I just love learning, so I really want to study something that I loved. And my my career, I guess if you want to call it, is kind of customer service-based. Um, like I worked with Fexco under Erlingus and Musgraves. Uh, I worked for Erlingus for three years and Musgraves for a year. And now I have a job with the HSE, working as a receptionist and an administrator across uh, two hospitals here in Cork City. So okay. like, there's, absolutely, there's opportunities out there for me, regardless of what my degree is, you know? Um, and it's, it's, it's been a subject of tension sometimes in my family where it's like, what are you going to do? You know, you, this degree is useless to you and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, that's, that's fine. Like, I don't need my, like people. So there's, there's people I know who have, you know, medical degrees and they're not using them. You know, uh-huh. like it doesn't really matter at, at this day and age what your degree is. You can use it if you want. Sure. You cannot use it. I, I, I think
1: all's well that will end well in the end, anyway, Laura. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry for your experience with Susie and that you got that letter uh, that led you to such hardship. And uh, you got the apology, but, but uh, they didn't really make up for the fact that uh, they told you were getting the full mm. grant, uh, no, and, and I you're think kind of getting half. do to
10: make up for anything. <laughs> yeah, we've contacted
1: Susie as well, and uh, in recognising the uh, you know the enormous amount of good work they do, we, uh, and in the interest of balance, we're awaiting a reply from them as well. Okay.
10: Good to know. Good to know. Thank you. Okay.
1: Thanks, Laura. Thank you very much.
10: Thank you for talking to me. Bye Thanks. Now. Cheers.
1: Okay. Text from PJ. Hi, Mick. Great to hear you back on the air again. Commiserations on the rising airline costs. Thankfully, I booked my trip to Amsterdam to celebrate the end of my exams. And I'd be getting even higher than the fares. Talk to Neil
0: Prenderville now. 0818 104 106. Corks Red FM.
1: Just turning ten to eleven. There's reports of a collision on the Glasheen Road near Flannery's Bar. Emergency services are on route to uh, take care on approach there. A uh, bit of a dip in the hill there, both sides. So take care on approach. Maybe avoid the area if you can for the next half hour or so. But reports of a collision on the Glasheen Road near Flannery's with emergency services on route. Now, everyone is like everyone else, yet everyone is different. In general, everyone wants to be liked. Everyone wants to fit in and be happy in themselves. Everybody wants a good job to be successful and to get on with their life, whether that's in the home, in social circles, uh, or, but more so, I suppose, in the workplace. However, everybody is not everybody. And at times, the very differences that make us unique can also be a challenge. Now, I'm joined online too by Work With Pride, professional uh, business network member Damien O'Halloran. Uh, good morning, Damien. You're the good chair- morning, Neil. How are you? Good. It's Mick, actually. You're the, you're the chairperson, yeah. are you?
9: I am. I am. Um, I'm the chairperson of the Work at Pride um, business network, okay. and I'm also a board member of the Cork Pride Festival.
1: So this is an LGBT plus community, uh, and you're kind of doing, is it kind of a LinkedIn for for members?
9: Yeah, exactly. Um, so I suppose today, yeah, we're absolutely thrilled to be able to launch the network. Um, The official launch is tonight in the Riverlea Hotel, which is completely sold out. Um, But essentially what we're doing is we're launching the Professional Business Network and it's an LGBT plus individual-to-individual network to allow people essentially to connect on a a professional basis and, you know, it is a Cork Pride, uh, Cork LGBT Pride Festival initiative.
1: Okay, of course, being different, and I'm not meaning being LGBT, but being different in any way, in many ways, uh, can lead to bullying, can lead to discrimination or harassment, uh, e- either directly or indirectly. Uh, and of course, many people now are emboldened to come out in the workplace, uh, which can never be easy, I imagine. That's a personal choice too, isn't it?
9: Yeah, and you know what? Um, it is a very personal choice, and not everybody chooses to come out in the workplace for, for many different reasons. Um what we've seen from research is that only 43% of LGBT employees in Ireland reports that they were able to come out in the workplace, and that was based on a now global survey. And, you know, coming out in the workplace is actually a constant process. You could almost say it's like a revolving door. You know, if you think about it throughout your lifetime, you know, first of all, you have to come out to yourself, you come out to your friends, you come out to your family, you come out in school, you come out in college. And then once you enter the workplace, you start to come out to the workplace again. And again, research has actually shown that LGBT plus people um, have to come out in the workplace at least once a week to so new colleagues, new team members, new customers, new clients. It can be pretty exhausting, right? So, but the the environment that we can see that actually provides those um, inv- that, those environments, the policies, the network, ERGs, the affinity groups, they actually, um, we actually see that those businesses are much more successful for that, those like-minded people. Sure, but it, it isn't
1: somebody who hasn't yet come out in the workplace essentially coming out on your website or on your on your social media, your, your professional network, uh, if if they become a member?
9: Not necessarily, not necessarily. Um, so we're using, we've actually partnered, we're delighted to partner with WorkVivo actually um, to be able to provide a network for people to interact in a private environment um, where they can discuss topics, have polls, attend events, and so forth. But opting into, that net- into opting into that network is an opt-in process, right? So you don't have to actually do that. You don't have to disclose yourself. Not everybody is comfortable in coming out for themselves, um, and never, not everybody wants to be identified, right? So that's an opt-in but by joining the network, you can receive information, you can observe from afar, and you can participate in some of those events mm-hmm. remotely by not having to come out.
1: Yeah, I, I want to frame this question properly. I don't want to offend anybody. Mm-hmm. But, uh, y- you know, everybody fought for so long for equality. Love is love. Individuality is individuality. And entitlements are entitlements. But isn't the very creation of uh, an LGBT plus professional business network... Um, decrying the very uh, equality that everyone achieved through the referendum.
9: Mm, it's a great point. I think um, you can look at that in terms of a men's shed. You can look at it in terms of a women's golf society, for example. This is just another way to connect like-minded people who have, you know, a passionate interest in supporting equality, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace. Um, now. What I would say is, it's not. Do you have to be a member of the LGBT community to join? Absolutely not. What we know is that allies will probably make up a heavy proportion of our members. Sure. So so yeah, absolutely not. You know, and I think any person who actively promotes and aspires to the, you know, the advancement of culture through inclusion, you know, be it intentional, positive or otherwise, is a benefit to human progress. Okay, fold.
1: so so will, will there be, for instance, an employer section where ABC Limited can declare that they are uh, very uh, open and and friendly to all persuasions? Uh, you know, a, as a company, that that we employ uh, a regime that is open and welcoming to all.
9: Yeah, and I think that's important. I think that's important when you think about um, interviews that perhaps we have done in the past. As as a, as a hiring manager myself, the tables turned, right? And if you think about the employees that are coming into the workplace right now, it's no longer a case of you know, why should uh, why sh- you know, why why you as an employee, what makes you stand out and why are you the best employee, employee that I should hire? What we're seeing right now is employees, the Gen Z and so forth, are asking why should I come work for you? What are some <laughs> of the policies in place that make you an attractive uh, employer of life? I mean, tell me about some of the things that you have in place, be it employee resource groups or so
1: forth. Okay. Finally, because I I have to go to news, Uh, how can people find you online? What's the URL? What's the title of the site? Absolutely. So it's a uh, workwithpride.ie The phone broke down there. Say that again, please. It's a workwithpride.ie workwithpride.ie Okay. Thanks very much. workwithpride.ie and that's Damien O'Halloran. Thank you, Damien. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks. Bye bye. Oh. Reports of a collision once again on the Glashine Road near Flannery's and the Cork to McCroom Road between Farren and Ovens remains closed as well. Expect delays with diversions in place. There are delays also on a diverted routes via Atterland.
8: Hey, it's Dave. Join me weekdays from four for Dave Max Drive, where I'll help get you home or give you a little lift at home. Big hits, loads of fun features and traffic info. What more could you need? Join me weekdays from four, Dave Max Drive.
0: 104 to 106, Red FM. This is the Neil Frendable Show.
1: And I'm joined on the line now by two redoubtable ladies. On line one, we have Eilish O'Carroll. Good morning, Eilish. Long time no see.
6: Good morning. How are
1: you? Uh, Not too bad at all, girl. And on line two, the redoubtable Mary Byrne. Hi, Mary. Hiya, sweetheart, how's it going? Oh, very good. Now, you two ladies are coming together for a play under the directorship of uh, the brilliant Richard Mansworth. And it's a kind of a play on words, really, for the Samuel Beckett play, Waiting for Gatto. Uh, I assume you g- girls are going to be eating cake because it's called Waiting for Gatto.
11: We're going to be eating cake and we're going to be eating uh, Maltesers and the whole lot. Okay.
1: It's, it's running at the moment in, in Port leash anyone's in that area. There are no definite dates for Cork yet, But Richard Mansworth tells me that you will be definitely coming back down to Leeside with this play.
6: Yes, That's correct. Go- is- yes. sorry. sorry, go ahead, Mary.
11: Yeah. No, the plan is to put it on tour if we get a reaction we're hoping we're going to get. So hopefully we will be on tour and we'll be travelling all over Ireland. The whole lot. Please God, after Christmas.
1: Okay, and it's nice working together, Eilish. Um, you, you, of course, have been on stage for many, many years now, of course, as yes. an integral part of Mrs. Brown's Boys and being Winnie McGugan.
6: Yes, and it's lovely to be back on stage, and it's lovely to be doing something different, Mick. You know, I mean, I love Winnie McGugan. Don't get me wrong, um, and and I love her character, but it's nice to be working with Mary. We get on like a house on fire. Two Dublin women, same sense of humour, um, and we're having we're having such fun. So, yeah, it's okay.
7: lovely
1: to be back. Ma- Mary, you'll you know that I was never a fan of the, of the formula, the formulaic uh, talent shows by which you emerged. And, of course, you are, uh, you, you, you are basically the person who uh, came from... It's kind of a rag- to riches story musically because your talent was only allowed to shine through because of the mechanics of such a show, whereas generally there's only one winner. You became a winner, really, in the people's hearts in uh, becoming a finalist in X Factor.
11: It was it was a crazy, crazy time because I had given up singing for years and then I came back into it and I took the X Factor on. I don't know how I took the X Factor on, but win or lose that show, in, in the hearts of all of the people who voted for me, I was a winner. And even when I came home to Ireland and even in the UK, anyone I met said, you should have won the show, you were the winner of the show, you were the... So that was an, a huge thing for me. And as you said, rags the riches, well... I don't know about the the, the riches, but I mean, the rags definitely change because the clothes start coming in and I start being able to buy a little bit extra for myself and look fantastic on television.
1: But but the Um, X X Factor did change your life. I mean, you you were, and uh, okay, it's a a worthy endeavor. You were uh, a checkout girl in Tesco and now you're, I won't say touring the world, but you're recognized as a professional singer still.
11: Yeah, exactly. I mean, what I always wanted to be recognized as, as a professional singer and never, ever thought that it would come true. So, yes, the X Factor did change my life. And I have to say, the X Factor gave me the confidence that I had needed for a long, long time. And as a young girl, I never had confidence. And it's only now that I have the confidence to say, yes, I can sing. I am a singer. And now I'm actually doing a bit of acting, which is even better again. And I wouldn't have been doing that if it hadn't been for the X Factor. So it did change my life tremendously.
1: Okay, Elise, your your story's somewhat different. Of course, I knew you in the difficult times. Uh, you know yes, when w- did. when when you were touring <laughs> to half empty houses uh, and right. uh, no one really ever stood uh, understood Brendan's vision uh, for yes. what for what could be. I, I was I was in one of the the video release. Uh, you know the, the the older the older ones. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then. The
6: Cold collection they are. They're a cold collection. Definitely yeah.
1: the old videos. Yeah. And, and then so, somebody, I think it was somebody who was involved with with the writing, of Only Fools and Horses," or the production of that, uh, came yeah. along and said, you, "You know, it's it's kind of like a, a washing line. You don't have to have X character in the show every every time, but just put them yeah. in every second time or whatever." And eventually, right. uh, it caught on. You, you guys cho- chose to pr- produce it all in Glasgow, and, and of course, the rest is history. One of the most endearing and enduring comedies of all time now.
6: Yes, and I mean it. You know, sometimes I still have to pinch myself. Uh, Nick, you know, uh, at the success of it all, um, you know, because you did know us in, in in the old days, and you did see us perform in front of half, you know maybe half a dozen people at times. And you know, they are, the, the the ironic part of that story is that we it was the same play that we're doing on on the in the series.
1: Yeah, it's, the, go, it's the same characters. <laughs> Uh, it's the same same family the same family members it's the same stage crew same
6: format yeah Yeah. and and now they love it now thank God they love it I think it's absolutely wonderful Um, but we'd been touring like 10 years no, nearly 15 years actually with Mrs. Brown's boys doing stage plays um, doing the UK doing Ireland we managed to get to Canada and this was well before the BBC actually showed an interest and of course once they came along and said okay we're going to put it on telly we're going to try it and I remember Brendan saying to me, listen, we're going to get the pilot. But we're not going to go further than that. It's not going to go past first space because you know what the English are like. They'll go, oh, we don't like the language. <laughs> um, so he was shocked. We were all shocked when they said, okay, we want to do six episodes. And when the six episodes, the first episode went out, there was an outcry of, how could you put this on television? That's not why I'm paying my license and so on and so forth. But by the third week, they had so many demands for it. And in Ireland in particular, we were then, we we got an audience bigger than the, the Late Late Show on the third episode. So it was, you know, we knew we had a success story going there. Whether you like it or you hate it, Mick, it's the majority of people love it. It's not everybody's cup of tea, and I get that, but actually there's nothing like a good belly laugh. And it does give you a good belly
1: laugh. All right, let's go back to Mary and tell us a little about uh, the Richard Mansworth production, Waiting for Gatto, Mary.
6: Uh, well, Richard is a young man only starting
11: out and he's a, an up-and-coming, I think, an up-and-coming producer in his own right. He's 21 years of age and he's decided that he wants to go into plays and he's put, a, put on this play called Waiting for Gatto. Now, it's about a group of people who have a lot of issues who come to this club not so much to lose weight with the hope of losing weight but Unfortunately, the Kit Cats keep getting in the way, and uh, also, also there's the fact that uh, there's a little bit of uh, kidnapping in it, and somebody being tied up and a pump being pumped into their face. So it's 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 fun, it's different, and the characters are just blending together and. Just making it. We're making ourselves laugh. We can't. Even, we don't even know how we're going to get through it because we're we'll halfway half the way through it. But it's a great, great concept, and it's it's very down to earth and very very relatable to a lot of people because we've all done diets, we've all tried all these exercises, and nothing seems to work. We all seem to go back to the old Kat and the Gatto and that's basically what it's about.
1: <laughs> As you say, Richard's just twenty-one. He's got his own stage production school. He's got his own uh, production company and uh, a fantastic screenwriter and all that kind of thing. Uh, okay, yeah. so you, you guys are on stage in uh in Port Leash at the moment, but of course this has national ambitions for touring next year. Oh Thank
6: absolutely. God. Yeah. Okay. And we'll be in we Port Leash we open on next Thursday the nineteenth, Thursday Friday and two shows on Saturday. So um you know I, I think people will be guaranteed a really good night's entertainment and having gone through the last two years of nothing, um come along and have a laugh.
1: Alicia, it yeah. would be remiss of me not to talk to you about your impending nuptials. Uh, I, you know, I, I know I know that you feel you don't need to get married to display your love for Marion. Uh, but unfortunately, for tax reasons, that, that seems to be what needs to happen now.
6: Well, you know, you know, I love the newspapers. Dearly, I really do love journalists. But they do have a way of twisting your words. And I think the question I was asked was, would you, you know, would you consider getting married? And I said, well, we had talked about it. And from that, they took... Eilish is going to marry her partner 20 years. Okay, to answer the question, yes, um, we have talked about it. And it would be because we're very happy the way they are. And you're dead right when you say we don't need to actually walk down the aisle to prove our love for each other. However, we're at an age where one of us could go, you know, we, we've lived, uh, I've, I've less to live than I've lived. So we have to be practical and say, so what's going to happen if one of us dies? And that's when the reality hit us and we thought, oh, right, we really need to protect each other legally as far as finances are concerned. And I don't want Marion left in a penniless situation. And she's the same with me. So it's very much about, well, maybe for tax purposes, that is the reason. Because it's the only way we can protect each other if we're married. It will not happen if we're uh, civil partners.
1: Okay, you guys still make your home in Cork?
6: Oh yeah, Marion still lives in Cork and I still live in Dublin and we'll come, obviously we bi-locate. I will never be able to let go of Cork, Nick, because i had 20 beautiful years down in West Cork and I still think about the times I have there. Um, I moved back to Dublin for practical reasons. Dublin obviously is my heart, and um, but Cork is my soul. It's just, yeah. I'll always have connections with Cork, and thankfully, Marion still has her place, so we can go down and we spend a lot of time in Cork and in Dublin. Brilliant. So we do have the best of both worlds.
1: Okay, Mary Byrne, however, is a confirmed Dub, right, Mary?
11: Definitely, definitely. Born and raised in the area, born in the front bedroom of twenty-six Clamore <laughs> Drive. Travel the world, and I always come back to where my heart and soul is, and that's ah. Ballyferma, Dublin.
1: Oh, Ballyferma. Uh, Mary yes. and Eilish, uh, people can see you on stage together which will be a treat, I imagine uh, only at the moment in Portlaoise uh, Mary, where can people see you singing and uh, see the delights of your uh, very, very powerful voice? Have you any tour coming up or any shows? We have a
11: couple of shows coming up but they're kind of spread out all over the place and I don't have the actual dates with me now, Mick because my manager is not here to give me the back of dates
0: <laughs> but uh, yes yeah.
11: people will find out if they go uh, on to my, my, um, my Facebook Uh, Mary Bourne official they will find that out and and they'll be able to come and see me and hopefully we get to meet them and have a laugh because everyone that follows me I have to say the love I've got is incredible from the people of Ireland incredible thank you all so much
1: and I've seen you blasting it out to great effect in Tenerife as well serenading Daniel O'Donnell (laughs) on St Patrick's Day and everything
11: (laughs) Daniel O'Donnell is one of you know what There was years when I kind of could not get Daniel. Everybody was saying, oh, Daniel's a great, and I was in oh, God. And then I got to meet him and his wife, Magella. and you know something? He is what he is. He is a genuinely nice person, and he is up for the crack. And we've become friends, and I am very honoured and proud to be called friend Daniel O'Donnell. Great stuff.
1: Okay, ladies, um, are you both, I'm going to ask you on the air, are you both happy now I gave you equal time? Because I don't want to be getting a baiting from either of you.
11: Nick, thank you, know much, thank you very much, darling.
1: Thank you. Thanks, fun. guys. And least regards, regards to all the crew. Thank you, Mary Byrne, as well. Waiting for Gatto by, job, by Richard Mansworth, currently in Lease. Thanks, ladies.
0: Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818 Cork's Red FM. And by
1: text to 0868104106 on the building uh, topic we mentioned in the newspaper review, I make my fiancé is a bricklayer and I would just like to tell people he breaks his back every day working so hard and cannot afford any other houses he builds. It's a disgrace. No wonder people don't want to do it. Extremely hard physical work and not enough pay to match it's a joke. On the National Maternity Hospital, hi Mick, I'm getting very sick of hearing about this proposed National Maternity Hospital and Catholic bashing. Yesterday we had complaints about the prayer at the opening of the Doyle. Also we embrace every other faith, uh, Faith, yet, uh, yet Catholic bashing seems to be a new trend. When will it end? Uh, Regards says Anthony, who's a regular texture to the programme. Uh, hello, this is uh, directed to Neil Prendival. Hello Neil, I just wanted to text you to say a huge thank you. I won a three night hotel break in the blue Haven Hotel last Christmas on your show. We're back only since yesterday and we also brought our 10-year-old daughter and the hotel included her in the offer very, very kindly. We had a brilliant time and great memories. Kinsale has lovely food and friendly people. Uh, We'll be back and thanks again. I don't have a name on that, but they won on this program and were royally treated by those at the Blue Haven Hotel in Kinsale. Margaret's on line 3. Good morning, Margaret.
5: Good morning, Nick. How are Uh, you this morning? I'm
1: very good, and you?
6: Very well, very well, thank you. Mike. I remember you long ago with all the wind-ups. You brought back great memories
1: when I heard you were to be on the show this morning. uh, Look, um, people keep asking me, uh, why don't you do them? There's lots of reasons. Number one is GDPR. Number two is the Snowflake Brigade. You would get sued. Number three, I'd have to have written permission before I could play one. or, or Or I'd be in the courts again. Uh, And and the biggest one of all, really, is uh, the smartphones now. You can't pretend to be in Dublin Castle when you're ringing from a...
6: That's quite true. (laughs) ...from a Cork number, you know. Uh,
1: So So there you go. Uh, Anyway, Margaret, you woke up one morning 16 years ago, and your vision uh, was reduced to 10%. That's right.
6: Yep. Up to then, I was driving, working, living life to the full, uh, happy out and woke up one morning, I just thought it was my glasses needed changing because I do wear glasses for driving and for computer work. And I just thought, but even though I was very good at getting my glasses changed and all that. But anyway, I went to the optician. The optician couldn't make head or tail of it. And then I was sent to the COH to the eye clinic. And the rest is history. I did a, there was a lot of tests done over a week. and. Um, they were confident that I would hold the 10%, but it wouldn't improve.
1: Okay, so you're, it, it, that 10% is a rapid reduction just overnight, eh?
6: Absolutely. The nerves at the back of both my eyes uh, deteriorated literally overnight.
1: Okay. So, now you're trying to be as independent as possible. You're based in Bandon. Uh, you, I live in Bandon you use yeah. a cane.
6: I, a, I, do, I use a long white cane, yes.
1: Okay, what, what percentage of your vision do you have left now, if any?
6: I have about nine.
1: Nine percent left. Yeah. So things are very, very blurry. Uh,
6: the word I use really is foggy. Okay. Foggy. Uh, foggy. Just for example, I was at a Melody May the other night. A friend of mine brought me to. Rende oh, fair play yeah. to And I love a May, but like I was sitting only four seats from the front, but still, I she was only like a little shadow on the stage. Okay. You know, just to put it in perspective, you know, she, it was still just fantastic to be able to get to these places. All right. You know that. You know that life isn't just for just existing anymore. But like that, now she was just a blur on the stage. But you
1: still enjoyed the gig, did you?
6: Oh, absolutely! Yeah,
1: absolutely. Okay. Now you go often to the Cuh for appointments for your eyes, and you like to I go don't. to Wilton Shopping Centre afterwards, sometimes. You kind of need the help of others, though, do you?
6: I do, because, um, you know, as a child, you were told to look at the green man to help you cross the road. But I can't see the green man. You were told to look, up at, to look at the green man to get across the road safely. But I can't see the green man. Now and if there's nobody else there with me, that you know when they move, I I move as well. But if there is nobody there, there is no sound. There's no audio signals, so I can't cross the road. And it's the traffic lights outside CoH, one of the largest hospitals in Munster, and. I have to take, even if I wasn't going shopping, if I was getting the bus home, I have to cross the road to get the bus home to Bandon. So I have to wait for somebody to come. Only only that very recently, an elderly gentleman arrived uh, with two crutches and he said, I'll wait for you now and I'll make sure you get across the road. Such a kind gentleman.
1: Okay, but you're depending on the kindness of others. If you, if you,
6: yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and if uh, I I have to, I have to wait. I've often had to have had to change my plans and get a bus into town to get the bus home because I couldn't cross the road.
1: OK, but at, at 9% sight, I, I salute that you're going to concerts, you're going to Wilton Shopping Centre, you're getting up to the CUH, you're getting on buses. But there is a big problem because if you want to go to the Wilton Shopping Centre after your visit uh, for your eyes to the CUH, uh, there's a very, very busy road there. Traffic going in both directions and, of course, traffic pulling in as well uh, to the hospital and turning right down to the A&E. What's the problem with the traffic lights uh, at the CUH?
6: There is no audio signal. There is no beep. If I could hear when the lights turn green for the pedestrians, when the green man comes on, and if there was a beep, I know then I can cross the road. But if there is no beep, I don't know if the lights are still red, orange, green. I don't know because there's so many different lanes of traffic.
1: And you would imagine um, that at such a centre of excellence medically uh, a, a bit of thought would have been given to the traffic lights to say we are going to have visually impaired people visiting this hospital. This is an absolute necessity at these traffic lights. Um,
6: it's. I'm at my wits end. I literally am at my wits end because um, I have to rely on others Uh it's just, to me, it seems a simple task. Is it just a flick of a switch? Is it financial? What is it? I just don't know. A lot of the lights, traffic lights in and around the city are audible, have au- have audio signals. But the main one in the whole city, there is none. And there hasn't been any there for a long, long time.
1: Well, thank you for bringing have- it to our attention. It's something I wouldn't have known. Now, you're advocating... Uh, along with the NCBI, the National Council for the Blind in Ireland, now what what these guys do essentially is enabling people who are blind or vision impaired to travel safely and independently. It's a big part uh, of what they do, and and surely their pressure must have uh, must have put some pressure on the powers that be to get those uh, signals upgraded to to sound signals. We
6: have written to. Um we have written to county councillors, city councillors, county manager, city manager last October. We've written to every single one of them. I'm a member of the advocacy network in the south under the, uh, with NCBI and some have uh, replied saying they'll see what they can do and more have just ignored. But, you know, when you become visually impaired, you... Uh, you have to learn new skills with your disability to, to gain your independence because it's gone completely. And it, all these learning, these new skills help you to be able to go on the bus, to be able to go into to the shopping centre. Who, oh, by the way, are fantastic over there in the shopping centre. They see me coming with a long white cane. You know, the people are fantastic to help as much as possible.
1: But, so if you walk into a shop, they'll kind of ask you, what can I help you with? What exactly are you looking
6: for? Oh, yeah, Do you, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Because I can't see colours or anything like that, but they're absolutely fantastic, you know. I wouldn't name any shop individually or coffee shop, <laughs> but, but they're fantastic.
1: Any other issues facing the blind and visually impaired? What about silent cars now? E-scooters.
6: E-scooters, they're allowed to go on the footpath. They're allowed to go on the footpath. There's no speed limit. And the government haven't included not putting them on footpaths under their new legislation. Um, they haven't included parking. They should be designated parking for e-scooters. Otherwise, they could be thrown, thrown anywhere on footpaths. We we'll go along with a cane or a person with a guide dog. And these things could be thrown and thrown anywhere but uh, in other countries make in other countries all, all this has been passed by legislation so Ireland should get into it now before they start doing their legislation, before they make the legislation uh-huh. there's well, no age limit on, on a, a person using an scooter a young young person can use it there is uh, no age limit so not only the visually impaired, but the people people on a wheelchair. Yeah? You know, it is uh, across the board, really.
1: Okay, well, Margaret, uh, you're claiming your independence as best you can, and we salute you for that. And Thank you for coming on the air, and uh, the question needs to be asked, what is the financial cost? Uh, of, of putting the audible signals into the lights between the Wilton Shopping Centre and the CUH, why hasn't it been done? If NCBI and yourself are advocating for it so strongly, if the uh, you know the the top level contacts have been made, uh, I know I, I believe it's a it's a private company and you know that's outsourced for the for the traffic lights now. Uh, so maybe they could come back with a, a timeline or a costing or. Uh, maybe City Hall has to uh, sanction that cost. I don't know. Uh, but thank you for highlighting the fact that it's needed. Uh, and now that you've highlighted it, let's hope it comes about.
6: Thank you, Rick. Thank you and very can much. I say, Mick, Mick, can I just say, just to, on, a, on a personal note, just a huge thank you to everybody that has helped me over the past 16 years to help me become independent and to make my life not just an existence. Thank you, every, thank you, everybody. Oh, well thank said. thank you, week for having me on. Thank, thank you,
1: week. Thanks, Margaret. I, thank, I wonder, do we thank have you. a Rooster's Piri Piri voucher that we could uh, we could send to Margaret? If not, we'll organize one. We're going to get you a Rooster's Piri Piri voucher. So uh, on your next trip to Douglas or Blackpool, you'll be able to go in and... Oh, or, thank and,
6: you so much. Thank you. Oh, thank you.
1: You're a no-nonsense woman, Margaret, and we and we appreciate that. And thank you for coming on. Uh,
6: thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye. Thank you, week. Thank thanks, you. bye-bye. Let's go to line two. Liam, good morning. Good morning, Mick. How are you? I'm good. Too many traffic lights, you're saying?
12: Well, you know, just to, just to go back on the story there, all the years ago when I was in the road to Stone Inn, and then up to that point, in about 2011, they put traffic lights in there at the junction there, you know? And uh, just one of many, many examples. And it was a disaster. People would come down from that road in the morning traffic, The light would go green, red, green, red, nobody moved. Um, many accidents... And um, and then at the moment, all you see then for, for the last, I don't know how many years, is the bane on everybody's life that drives around Cork. There's traffic lights just popping up left, right, and center. Even estates aren't even finished. Housing estates aren't even finished. They've got traffic lights before there's anything else there, you know. And um I just wanted to find out, really. I mean, you know, the expense. What happened in the city years ago? They 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 privatised it and gave it to a company Infratech, to run the traffic light systems in Cork. Now, obviously, they're a business, and so it's up to them to to sell more of what of their product, so and maintain more of their product. So, traffic lights at every single junction. The one, the the most annoying one for a lot of people down Glanmire Way would be on on probably our oldest roundabout in Cork, down the end of Tivoli and stuck traffic lights in there, it worked perfectly for 30 years, you know, and um, it's just gone beyond be on the joke, the suburbs are destroyed with traffic lights, you know, the lights of Middleton, huge big a- areas there, all the new bypasses waste of time because of traffic lights, they could have been roundabouts, um, Blackpool, you can't go for a hundred yards without a set of traffic lights. You know all the bypass there, um, Middleton, Gladmire, uh, everywhere. You know. So is,
1: is it an open door then for private concern to lash up these traffic lights? Uh, you know, citing health and safety as a uh, as the reason for their their proliferation. Well, you see, it's grand to say that, but the opposite would be
12: true, because, uh, like, I, I, I witnessed the time they put in traffic lights down by the road to Stone In, I witnessed three or four accidents that I happened to see when I, you know, in the time I that I was there, you know. And, it, you know, people trying to jump the lights or, you know, to go through an amber, turn red light, and stuff like that. And it's just, I, I'd love somebody to see the figure, how much they paid this crowd to be to, to, to put in new traffic lights everywhere, and every new estate has traffic lights. Nobody even looks at roundabouts, which are a much better option. And they, it, it's it's all over the place. Where i work working here, down by Penrose Key, there, the they, the traffic lights like they seem to be messing around with them in one way or another. Some days it's an absolute nightmare for the the, the traffic coming down, you know, from coming down the Key, coming down Horgan's Key, going straight on or left and it's just jammed up there constantly in the mornings and in the in the evenings it, it's it's just beyond a joke i mean even in the city you've got traffic lights you've got uh, in the suburbs you've got them everywhere where you don't always need traffic lights huh. you know say even in the bellavelan on the road going from bellavelan out to the Glen, that big road there there's like there's traffic lights off the little housing estates how many cars use use per day, and, you know, just blocking huge volumes of traffic. When you go out, the main archery out of the city is the link. You go out, and that turn there that comes off from, you know, from the, from, the, from our roadside, you know, that, that, it's too frequent. It's, it, it, it doesn't, it stops the traffic too often coming out of the link, and that causes huge traffic problems, you know? Yeah, but well, there's a big I'd difference, like go- I suppose,
1: between the necessity for traffic lights and, and, and the success that they bring to traffic flow. Is there not a traffic monitoring division in City Hall or whatever? To well, you
12: see, this is what I'd love to ask the question. Who does sit down? I mean, well, who does sit down and do all this and make a decision? Yes, traffic lights. Yes, traffic lights. Why not look at roundabouts? You know, there's like, especially down in Glanmire, if you go out to bypass, in Gl- uh, sorry, in Middleton, and you were going out you wanted to bypass Middleton, you go out that new link system they have, massive big set of traffic lights was easily, you would have easily put a roundabout in there. Yeah, but if, if you
1: look at large roundabouts, like the Kinsale Road roundabout. And that's a very fast one. If you're coming along and, and, and getting on that roundabout, it's pretty quick. You do need traffic lights on that roundabout, Leo. Well,
12: you do. You do, absolutely. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. We do need traffic lights in certain situations, in a lot of places, but not everywhere. You know, like, they jump the gun here and everything. I mean, it's even, they're, they're digging up roads now down Patrick's Quay, and we've been discussing all this week, to put new bus, uh, cycle lanes in and something. They're doing all this cycle lane stuff. It's a joke. I mean, our public transport is shocking in Cork.
1: Now, what I'd like if an answer to, actually, is, is when you come out of the tunnel, either way, if you're heading down towards Middleton, or if you're coming in the other way through the tunnel and heading towards Roachestown. Uh, these sixty mile an hour and eighty mile uh, kilometer an hour signs, and there's no roadworks going on whatsoever. It's the same motorway that was one hundred and twenty a year ago, uh, and and for for a long time there was a speed van there catching people.
12: Absolutely, sure, that's, that's the whole thing. They will always stick down with, uh, on, on a good place to catch people, you know. But it just has to be all re-looked. I mean, the traffic, I mean, every 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 listener here inside the car will, will agree with me. It's has beyond the joke trying to get across the city and rush hour, certainly. But a lot of times, a lot of no-no times, even maybe 11 o'clock or something, trying to drive across the city. And you look, the amount of time you have wasted sitting in traffic lights where you don't always need traffic lights. Roundabouts could have been a lot more effective, especially on the suburbs. It's all these traffic lights put in, and as like I say, they're now digging up all the roads, putting in cycle lanes, but they're jumping the gun by five years, till we have a decent public transport system, till we have something like the Lewis, which could easily operate a sort of a system in the middle of Patrick Street, even a one-way big monorail system that goes down the quay, that goes out the middle of the link road, it takes in, and then you have a branch off it for Douglas, Carrigaline, you have a branch off it for for Ballycollig it takes into CUH. You know, all these sort of things, come back in the straight road or don't... don't, don't we'll have, we'll have
1: the trams back eventually, years and years after they uh, dug up the lines. Liam, thanks for your contribution. Uh, oh, and by the way, I, I'm told to congratulate you as well on your recent wedding.
12: Oh yeah, Thanks, Vic. Yeah, finally, yes, we did get to uh, we did get to get married eventually. Remember, do you remember two years ago? COVID kicked in a week later, so we did finally have it in March. We got the fantastic weather day in the March in the Blue Haven, the Blue Haven in Kinsale, out of the, the back of Hamlet. So done a fantastic job. It was great uh, it was a great day. The, the hotel was superb. The weather was brilliant. The crack was mighty. So I finally stuff. got to do it, and I got
1: to marry the love of my life. Best wishes <laughs> to yourself and Tracy, Liam. Thanks a million. Thanks, Vic. Thanks, me. cheers. Bye bye. Rob's on line one. You work in a signage company, Rob. Hi, good morning. Now, hi, good morning. You do window dressings and shop signs.
13: That's it, Mick, yeah. How are you doing? Anyway, a long time not here. Um, Yes, um, our our industry is very much based on um, parking and driving around the city centre and trying to find parking spots. But I find uh, that uh, when I actually go to vet a job and uh, I give in a quotation to our clients, uh, they ask me always, what's this 50 euro extra at the bottom of your in, uh, of, of your quote? And I said, well, that's just in case we get pulled for parking inside the city centre during certain hours. Is this Robert so, Stevens? If, yeah, this is Robert Stevens. Oh, uh, I he, didn't know that. Hiya, so, Rob. How you doing, Mike? Good to hear from you. So you, you, so you actually job, have to put 50
1: quid on a quote in case you get caught?
13: Yeah, and if you get caught, you tell your client when they ask you, uh, what's this extra 50 for? That's in case we're caught for parking in an area or beyond the time uh, allowed. And if we're not caught, you you don't, you fought forfeit the 50 or goes back in, and they accept that. Because I find, as a business person, it's becoming harder and harder to give a, a good quote for any work that we have to um, uh, take on board in, in the city centre during uh, daylight hours, particularly daylight hours. And I find a lot of the work that we're quoting for now is uh, we have to quote for out of hours.
1: But sure, sure, surely you're, you're availing of the uh, loading bays. Yes, but that's the
13: problem. Loading bays are taken up by these jeeps, and people for you know these people carriers. People are parking in them, and I I I've often driven around Patrick Street and the South Mall three or four times before I get one in Patrick Street, and I just might see somebody coming up with doing a bit of shopping, and 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 they're driving the bloody jeeps away, you know, and there's nothing happening about that. So and they, these jeeps really have commercial
1: could... tax, do they? I beg your pardon? Would these Jeeps have the commercial tax that would allow them to park I, in uh, Loading Bays? I doubt very much,
13: Mike. I doubt very much these look like private vehicles to me. Okay. That's the first issue. Now, a couple of weeks ago during COVID, during the COVID period, we happened to be, have two vans in Oliver Plunkett Street in Loading Bays. We were walking in the Oliver Plunkett a very early morning, start 7am, and we were advised that, look, it's 11 o'clock, you have to be out of there, and by half 11, they'll give you half an hour, grace. So two minutes beyond the half hour time limit, I walked to my van and there was this lady taking my uh, taking my number and I explained to her that we were only two minutes and she said, I'm sorry, that's it. There was no compromise. There was no issue. There was nothing. I was trying to earn a living. It was during COVID. The was, street was empty and we were in loading bays and that really, you know, I suppose that erred me like from the point of view that if you're trying to do a bit of business inside the city centre, you have to seriously think about Uh, taken on the job in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that goes for builders, it goes for an awful lot of people who have to try and and do some renovation work or some work very similar to our type of work in the city centre.
1: And of course, uh, as long as you're circling the city looking for a parking uh, space, your productivity is going down because you're not getting paid for that time.
13: Productivity is down, costs are soaring with diesel costs, you can imagine, Mick. But it's the frustration of it all because, like, we may only have to go into town to do what we say... An hour's walk, maybe two hours' walk inside a bank or in a shop or something had fallen down. We had to go and fix it. And it's just a nightmare because we're parking on the South Mall and we might be walking over by the by the Opera House. You know, uh-huh. it's it's silly, silly beggar stuff, you know. But I can fully appreciate, Mick, that the city is not, conj- it's not meant, it's not planned out to the degree of... Uh, I think these people, they go way out far they look at how other countries walk. They come back. They think they going to walk here. We're not giving it the thought they should give it. And like that gentleman who we just spoke to, with traffic lights everywhere, I'm fully behind him with uh, traffic lights being taken away and roundabouts being put in position. Seriously, on small ones, certainly small ones. But um, you know, it's just something I had to say, Mick, because no fair, fair play, Rob. You've, you've built
1: of, a, you've built a very decent business uh, from scratch, really. Uh, you do all of the big exhibitions, and uh, you know you could be setting up for ant-shirt to to say a few words and all that backdrop and that kind of thing, as well as the window dressing and the signage and that kind of thing.
13: Correct. That, yeah. that is correct. And it, it, it's very much kind of a in and out as quickly as like Pearl Harbor. You've got to get in quick and get out fast, you know, and it's sometimes it, it definitely is adding to the costs of business people trying to get work done in the city center and equally People would look at the environment of where they're going to walk and they say, Listen, lads, this ain't worth this because there's too much manhandling, there's too much of this, there's too much of that and they might turn around and say, I'm sorry, we can't do the job because it's not worth their wife.
1: Yeah. Okay. Rob, Robert Stevens, thanks a million and best of luck with Stevens. Is, is it Stevens Display Solutions or Stevens Displays or
13: No Stevens Display Solutions, Mick. It, yeah. And um listen great to hear you back on the radio. So good. Thanks a million, thanks, Rob. Mick. Thanks. You All welcome. the best. Bye bye. That's bye
1: bye. Robert Stevens there. Uh, Joel is online too. Good morning, Joel. Morning, uh, Mick. How are you? No, you went to the Marina Market, yeah?
4: Uh, yeah, we were. Um, me and my family went down to the Marina Market there on Sunday. Um, that was our first time there in a the while, like. But uh, yeah, it was a good day out, you know. It's and just you know, it's great to support local cork business, you know. But um, the traffic situation down there and the parking is absolutely outrageous. Um, like we arrived. And I parked close enough to the entrance of the actual market itself. There was a small car park where the warehouse of the market is. And that is usually, if you don't get there very early, it, it, it's the full, yeah. are, it's going to be full So anyway, we parked outside the, the gate, you know. And we, we spent about an hour and a half at the marina market, got something to eat, got a walk in by the marina with the children. We came back then to find at least 12 cars, uh, clamped on both sides. Um... Where the port is you know
1: okay so that, this is close to the uh the, the Keyside entrance to the marina market
4: Keyside entrance to the marina market yeah okay now, there are and on second look it fair enough it, the, the signs do on second on second uh looking you're seeing these FCOA signs the company that run the parking and it does say no authorized vehicles uh allowed you know yeah but the thing is when you're arriving fair enough you're arriving and you're seeing already there was at least 30 cars parked there already, you know. And it's Sunday hours. And I, to be honest, I just assumed that, you know, that's they're, they're in charge of parking during the weekdays or whatever. And, you know, it's Sunday hours, like, because uh, they don't charge uh, Sunday parking down in Douglas.
1: Yes, so, you, you um, would imagine on Sunday that they wouldn't be enforcing the clamping.
4: No, and, you know, I mean, there was no cars obstructing anything. There was no, um, like Port of Cork states for health and safety that they're doing this, but there, there, was no, there was no cars obstructing any work or any, anything going on. Yeah, the port, um, the,
1: the port of Cork is a private dock. Park uh, car, par cars block machinery, uh, can block machinery, needed to conduct work along the quays. This, however, is down towards the very end of that, of that work. You would imagine you weren't getting the in the way.
4: No, there was no car in the way. Um, well, what did it cost, those, cost to get released? It was €125, Euros, uh, Mick.
1: That's an expensive uh, lunch at the market.
4: It is very. Uh, we said it. So we won't be going there again. I mean, Jesus Christ! Like that, that's that's the, um, that's the that's the that's the highest they can legally charge to release. And uh, as I said, there was about twelve cars there that, uh, that on on the Sunday, and that's just in the space of an hour. So you know, there's <laughs> there's big money being made here. Like.
1: Yeah, Rich Picking is there for App Cohen, which is the parking company of America, isn't it?
4: Uh, French-owned, I believe.
1: Is it okay? Um, so. Um, you you were trying to support a local enterprise. Uh, you've written to the port yeah. of Cork. You doubt you're going to hear anything back from them.
4: I've written. Uh, I haven't written my Cor- uh, report to Cork, uh, Port of Cork yet. I've written an appeal to it uh, at Cora about the signage because the signs. There's about three signs there, uh, Mick, and yeah. one of them's absolutely faded. You know, I mean, there's more signs there to tell you about illegal dumping than there is about no parking.
1: Yeah, but 125 you know? seems excessive. Uh, now I know somebody's got to come out and release the clamp. And that can't be a nice job with all the abuse you're going to be getting. Uh, but you'd get less of a fine for a more serious traffic offence. So like, is, isn't it, it, yeah. Isn't if, if you're over the speed limit, isn't it 80 euros? I know you get points euros, as well. 80
4: euros, yeah. Um, if, when Dublin City were doing uh, clamping, they were charging 80 euros release fee. And I, I don't know what it is in Cork, the county council pack offences. I, I assume it's about 80 euros as well. Yeah, well,
1: 125 by a dozen cars is 1500 quid.
4: Yeah. I mean, that's you know and this company is, is, is well known in Cork now for causing misery to, to, especially in Douglas they're like uh, they're just jumping out catching people in the, um, the mills and uh, Cork railway station I believe I, I wouldn't
1: imagine Apco are there to be liked they're there to make a
4: profit and, and there to keep they are things made, it, moving and they're like there for
1: health and safety grounds as well there's loads and loads of signs I'm told by a texter uh, up there saying you'll be clamped outside the car parks if you don't want to be clamped don't park there
4: that's, yeah, and that's fair enough and as I said look when you're arriving you don't take when you see like a, 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 a row of cars parked there you're assuming you know it's assumption as well like you know yeah, yeah. and not every car was clamped uh, me and a few other lads or the other people there that were clamped to be, be cleared this and the, uh, the park warden just basically said oh we were close to the sign so it wasn't really there's no boundary there like and, yeah
1: fellow dummy I mean? ones don't assume because assume makes an ass out of you what and that? me
4: that's that is, that is true. Yeah, yeah, that
1: is true. All right, listen. Uh, I don't think you are going to get any uh, recourse back for your one hundred and twenty-five. I don't, I'm not sure if you are going to get a response from APCOA. If you do write to the border Cork and get a response, uh, let us know. But I'm, I just okay. wonder why uh, an extended car park for the market couldn't be leased uh, on the last fifty or one hundred yards of the. I know there is other businesses in there as well. I know there's a, there is there's a tile distribution well, and stuff in there as well.
4: Well, the last point is to make is, that, I mean, they were very they were very quick to seal off areas during COVID. I mean, they have the barriers there. Just put a whole row of metal barriers all the way down the key, key side and just, yeah. you know, have it more, way more labelled. All right.
1: Uh, an expensive day at the Marina Market. You won't be returning expensive because day. of this. Uh, no. Thanks a million, though.
0: No bad. Thanks, Joel. Thanks the Neil Brendeville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 0818 104 106.
1: Coming up on eight minutes to midday. Hi, Mick. Uh, Liam here from Goldberg's. Uh, I hope this email finds you well. I just heard you talking about the clamping going on down in Kennedy Quay and the subsequent response possibly from the Port of Cork. Uh, despite people thinking the keys are largely disused these days, nothing could be further from the truth. In recent months, the loading and unloading areas on Kennedy Quay are being used extensively. And I can assure your listeners that the Port of Cork are very busy down there of late. The clamping has come about as a result of frustration on behalf of the Port of Cork as people People who are visiting the marina market are quite simply abandoning their cars wherever they can get a space, particularly on Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, As you know, uh, we are only about 50 yards from the Keys here at Goldbergs and every day there are many dozens of trucks loading and unloading. In fact, it's the busiest I've seen the docks in the eight years we are trading here. Things were a little different during lockdown. As you know, our customers took full advantage of the open space when the sun came out this time last year. But things are back to pre-COVID life now. And people need to realise that the Port of Cork workspace is private property and should be treated as such. For the purposes of clarity, if you look at the photo I sent you, which was taken this morning with the river on the left, uh, the Port of Cork uh, own approximately 40% of the road surface from the edge of the water inwards. In fact, the line, uh, and I can't show you obviously on radio the picture, but the line provided by the building uh, in the picture provides a reasonably good idea of where their property ends. And the Atcoa parking signs are held within that boundary. The areas in the middle and the entire area on the right of the picture which we'll possibly put up on our social media or City Council property and people can safely park there at any time outside of pay parking hours without the risk of a ticket or a clamp. To be fair to the Port of Cork who are by the way uh, are exceptionally easy to deal with as a business uh, they are trying to conduct their business on a busy quay. And if even one car is left there during their working hours, it disrupts the entire workings of the docks. My advice to people if they don't want a clamp is to park on the right or as the Port of Corker suggested, choose on-street pay parking or one of the many multi-storey car parks available in the city. Do not forget... Uh, that although the docks is not cordoned off, it's a private property area and a very busy uh, area indeed, and indeed a dangerous place to park. Let's be honest, clamping in is an abhorrence, largely due to the attitude of the clampers themselves, but I can assure you, the Port of Cork are only doing this as a last resort, and so says Liam in Goldberg's. We have a statement from Infratech as well. Uh, one of a number of maintenance companies hired to, uh, we are, One of a number of maintenance companies hired to maintain the traffic lights in uh, parts of the city. The lights that are going in at present are for cycle lanes to encourage people to get out of the car. We're also uh, upgrading the lights to LED to make the units more environmentally friendly. The push buttons are uh, now being replaced by an audible button citywide, which is good news. The upgrade works start this week and will be complete by the end of the year. And the upgrade of the push button at the CUH has been on the agenda for quite a while. We'll finish with a little bit of music and why would we not finish uh, with our Irish hopeful tonight? Irish Eurovision star Brooke Scullion uh, and we'll be on our social media tonight uh, doing all things Eurovision but here's the music that could take us all the way. That's our Irish hopeful Brooke Scullion taking the stage tonight in uh, Turin in Italy for the Eurovision Song Contest. My thanks to the programme's producers Seamus Whelan, Kevin Galvin and uh, Claire O'Connor for the Neil Prendival Show today. Best of luck to Brooke tonight in the Eurovision.